0: Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT A20. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath.
1: Well, no, it's not. Edwin's not here. He's taking a little time off. I'm March Helper, and happy to host this afternoon, and I know how to take a deep dive into politics. I... Don't take a deep dive into a swimming pool. So don't invite me for a pool party. But if you want to talk politics, I'm uh, ready anytime and uh, happy to be here today. Just listening to the newscast at the top of the hour here, there's like five more topics we could have planned to discuss. Those uh, college... Ivy League presidents were just astounding, right? I am um, I'm a political pundit. I'm an activist with Indivisible Chicago. I'm organizing campaigns. And uh, by day, I'm a communications consultant. And I got to tell you, there, there were at least 10 better ways to answer those questions. They let themselves be trapped by Republicans like amateurs. Then their apologies almost worse than the things they said in the first place. The president of Penn wasn't focused on the harm that genocide would cause. It was nonsensical, uh, the, what she said, and insulting, uh, just as insulting as her initial answers. They hired a fancy law firm, the same one. That helped uh, BP with the old the oil spill years ago. And even more years ago, they advised uh, President Nixon on how to handle the Watergate tapes. I don't think either of those turned out very well. And if that was the resume I read or the credentials I saw for a law firm, I think I'd go hire someone else. And I know I would hire a communications specialist. The legal law firm will keep you out of legal trouble, but they didn't keep them out of PR trouble. Uh, That's a side angle, but something we're all following. And uh, how much time do you give those presidents before they are out? Because uh, communications reality is pretty hard to survive these things, and this is the process of – Maybe the stages of grief where you apologize, you're defensive, you'll blame someone else. They haven't done that yet, although I just blame the law firm so they could use that if they want to. And then pretty soon you uh, have acceptance and that's when they're out. Maybe they'll survive, but odds are against them. Uh, Speaking of survival, there's a crazy amount of talk about whether our president will survive for a second term. I absolutely believe he will, despite that other news item today, 37% approval rate, all-time low. But I don't think it's down more than a point or so from where it was before. Uh, I'd like to see it higher. There's no uh, piecing that back together, I suppose, as a comment. But still, uh, he's still pretty much where he always has been. But why? 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 That question is where we'll start with my first guest today. Paul Kendrick is the head of Rust Belt Rising. Paul, uh, as far as I know, created this organization and runs it. He'll tell me in a second if I'm wrong about that. And what it is, is a campaign arm Grassroots campaign arm Based here in the Midwest uh, In the swing states that matter So what Paul does Makes a difference uh, To put it mildly He organizes phone banks And canvassing And training And polling So we know where things are At the grassroots level And his intel Matters more to me Than those national polls For sure Uh, And as a colleague From Indivisible Chicago He matters a lot to me Paul, welcome To our show
2: Thank you so much for having me, Marge. Wonderful to be with you and talking about some important stuff today.
1: Yeah. So I just want to say from my perspective, President Biden has done more, uh, have made more progressive improvements for our country than any president in modern times, probably since LBJ, we won't go back to FDR, but certainly he's on par with LBJ. He just did this big high-speed rail thing this week. Um, He's got uh, ticking off all the progressive boxes. So why don't people like him more?
2: It's a great question. Uh, And and I'll just note uh, that I did not create the organization that uh, uh, the the board chair did and that I was hired as a campaign veteran to really organize things and get get things going. So I've been working on Rust Belt Rising uh, since 2019. Uh, uh, This is the third election cycle of it. And uh, it is a a really flummoxing question, but I I think I have some ideas that might be helpful. Um, You know, I was talking to our pollster recently, and he was saying, you know, I don't know if Democrats understand how close this election is shaping up to be. Um, and, and clearly you do. Um, but, you know, I think we, we've all been working hard these last few elections of the Trump era. And so, it, you know, it might be, oh, gosh, we got to do this again. But what but, well, we really do, because democracy and uh, the future of our country's on the line. And so. I think, he you know, President Biden really took on the right things and has an outstanding record when you talk about, you know, getting a bipartisan infrastructure law done, when you talk about the economic recovery, the jobs being created, when we look at the Inflation Reduction Act was the, you know, finally passing climate legislation, but but through the lens of creating good, clean energy, manufacturing jobs and, um, and lowering prescription drug prices. So he really did a lot of the things I would have advised the Democratic president to do. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening here? And I think uh, people at this point in the cycle, I think, are when they're answering questions like that, they're they're well, you know, the Republican side is, is going to kind of disapprove of things. And then I think, you know, with with others and independents, some uh, Democrats. You know, we know coming out of the pandemic, a lot of these corporations raised prices and we feel it when we go grocery shopping. And, and so even though the economy is really creating jobs and we really came out of a hard time that our country was in, you know, when we think back to 2020 um, and, you know, we're in an even stronger position than we than we were. Um, but you know, when, but I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there, and I think that that is kind of taken out in that question. And so the key will be strategy wise, ultimately, how we take this election from being a referendum to a choice and really being able to pose you know what President Biden is fighting for, first, what you know Donald Trump would be, and we can talk more about that. But I think, you know, that's happening. Uh, I certainly think the Israel-Palestine-Palestinian you know, conflict is um, stressing the Democratic coalition of, of, of people who are, you know, who would vote for Democrat who are part of the progressive liberal coalition, you know, seeing that very differently, <laughs> having yeah. different kind of sympathies. And and um, so I think that is exacerbating it. Um, and, you know, and, and there are questions about you know, President Biden's age, and a lot of young people have in particular, um, that, you know, those I know who work for him are like, he's super sharp. I'm not sure people understand how sharp he is, how, you know, how much of a policy wonk he is, but, you know, that there are those questions. And so, you know, a lot of these are things that over the course of the campaign, that I think he's going to be able to answer and show as we pose that choice to Americans, and then they can make that choice between the kind of chaos and corruption of and damage of the of the Trump era versus the progress that's been happening under President Biden.
1: Yeah, I you know I, I think for one thing when you talk about age, people will say, well, you know, Trump is pretty much same age, very close, and. Mm-hmm. Um, it, one thing I've seen over and over again in politics is the negative hurts if it goes against your image. So that's why uh, that's why Trump gets away with in his circles, gets away with having piles and piles of documents he's stealing from the government. Uh, whereas one piece of paper in Biden's garage uh, and, you know, they want to lock him up. Right. Uh, and the same with his sexual transgressions, let's say. And if, if Biden were to be found, I mean, that would be to me, you know, shocking. But uh, here, here is Here is uh, Trump leading, you know, what would have been called at some time, the moral majority, although it's quite the minority, uh, actually. And yet he is he has no morals. He has no scruples, no morals in a traditional sense. Um, And yet if Biden uh, uses of alternate email to contact his family in private, you know, they Mm want to lock him up again. So uh, that's one of the problems Biden has. He is. You see him, and he speaks far more cogently, uh, intelligently, more than cogent. I mean, he says smart things. He does smart things. It mm-hmm. reflects his knowledge of policy. Trump rambles and makes mistakes and uh, calls mm-hmm. people names and all that. That's just who he is. You know, no one cares. Yeah. So you're fighting a higher standard in that sense, and yeah. that's a challenge.
2: No, it absolutely is, and and— that's why I do think it will be important in these months ahead to really focus people in on how this affects them. And, and I think front and and foremost on reproductive freedom and, you know, the fact that Trump, you know, obviously, his justices got Roe v. Wade overturned and with the trifecta would pass a national abortion ban. Like that is what is at stake in this election. And Mm -hmm. so I think when you see things in those terms, it's not as much about Biden and Trump and personal kind of foibles and eccentricities. Uh, You know, it it really is about kind of two different parties and two different belief systems for the freedoms that people should have. And, And 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 again, so that's where making this election about a choice um, is going to be really key. So it's not like, oh, well, you know, just Trump is entertaining and, well, you know, that's just Trump and uh, and whatnot. No, this is extreme real life consequences for people. Um, And also, I I believe in really framing this around, um, additionally, in kind of who people are fighting for. You know, I think Trump is ultimately fighting for, you know, this extremist agenda, and you know maga that wants to you know take away people's votes and and the wealthiest and, and, and you know corporations and, and getting tax breaks and, uh, and whereas you know president biden is clearly you know fighting for working families and working people to be able to to get ahead in this country to deal with the costs that they that we have you know from child care to you know healthcare you know and making sure our schools have the funds they need and and so who you're fighting for, to me, is kind of the question of the election that we need to get to. Who do you care about? Um, and, uh, and and so if we do that, I, I hope it will help remind people uh, of the, the Trump era and, and what he actually did and how bad it was, um, and so that they – you know, don't have some kind of you know a bit of American amnesia here, and just because they're you know you know worry about this and that, concerned about this that, it's like, okay, well then we'll do that again. Like no, that was uh, <laughs> has ter- been that long. Damage. So it, it might be frustrating. You know that yeah, it does Biden is held to a way different standard, and I think. You know, a lot of the national political journalists, they want to appear balanced. So it's like, oh, you know, there's this candle on the other hand, there's this. Candle. But it's like, well, but th- there aren't really any on the Biden, you know, side. And, and then they gloss over these huge things of, you know, yeah. Trump saying, uh, you know, he'd be a dictator and stuff. Um, so it's really frustrating. But at the same time, we can't um, in our mind um, forget that we've beaten him and his coalition, the MAGDA folks, we, 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 we've beaten them the last few cycles and we can do it again. Like we, we should not turn him into something more powerful than he is. We have mm-hmm. the people to do it. If we get our people out, if we persuade people who you know voted for Biden last time to do it again, the the, the, the coalition that did that can do it again. Uh, and, and so I think we have to keep that in mind in an empowering way. Um, but if we don't do that, then there's no question Trump has enough fans, uh, you know, that, that he could be president. So, you know, that's that's our challenge.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I've i said this over and over again. Uh, in 2016, we didn't have this grassroots network. We didn't have Indivisible. We didn't have Indivisible Chicago yeah. working in our three-state mission here in the Midwest. We didn't have Rust Belt Rising. We didn't have Sister District. Um, we didn't have this whole network. Uh, swing left i don 't want to leave yep. any out, but there's a lot of us yeah. uh, that have organized in different ways to do the same thing. Turn out the grassroots vote and i you know I've run various campaigns, worked on various campaigns, and always argued that the field was as important as the media buy um, mm-hmm. the people who do media would have disagreed, but I you know you need both components, and you can see that now because mm-hmm. we 've made a true field component. And if we'd had this in 2016, President Clinton, President Hillary Clinton, would have thanked us. Um, But we didn't know we needed it. But we know now. Um, Another thing that you mentioned that I want to go back to is this uh, idea about, you know, he's going to be a dictator on day one, which you said, Mm -hmm. you know, people don't even care about that. But actually, (laughs) it looks like they do care. I love this story that came out today from The Washington Post uh, about The leadership in Trump's campaign uh, disavowing the statements that come Mm -hmm. from, uh, you know, the wannabe press secretary or that guy was his name, Davis, Mike Mike Davis, I think, who wants to be attorney general, who says he will be the attorney Mm -hmm. general, talks about locking up journalists and dissidents Mm -hmm. and leftists and uh, has and freeing all the uh, January 6th. convict convicts let's say um and he's he's made all these interviews and um Apparently it's hurting. I can't wait till somebody polls on this question because I think it's going to be one of our best arguments. Um, and it's what you were teeing up a minute ago, this idea about the two different futures that are envisioned for our country. And the party of freedom fries is not the party of freedom for us, as it turns out. <laughs> now the Democrats yeah. are the freedom party. And the more we yeah. talk about your freedom uh, for Uh, access to abortion, your freedom uh, to have your children read whatever books you want them to Mm -hmm. read, not the book some other parent uh, chooses or bans uh, and tells them they can't read and on and on. Um, So what they did was put out a statement um, saying that, uh, I love this, people publicly discussing potential administrative jobs for themselves or their friends are in fact hurting President Trump. And themselves. Which is, you know, this is also a truism in politics. I've been through uh, various uh, transition teams uh, here in Chicago more than elsewhere. But um, y- even if you've been hired, you don't make that announcement ever ever, ever, (laughs) the guy who's hiring or gal who's hiring you is the one who wants to say, and they know when and where uh, they want to say it. So if you start talking about, well, I've been hired to be the blah, 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 you will not be the blah, blah, blah in my my, uh, (laughs) observation. So uh, not experienced, because I never did that for the government jobs I got. I followed the protocol. And these guys are not. Even so they think... They're helping Trump by talking his language, but mm-hmm. only he talks his language, and that's generally a rule in politics. But boy, it's a rule with him. He doesn't want someone else stealing the thunder from him.
2: No, yeah, <laughs> that's right, exactly. Yeah, they try to be imitators. Well, you know what? One thing that was interesting that we found in our our, our uh, the poll we did right before the midterms is if a uh, candidate had. Um, denied the uh, results of the last election, or you know, supported having uh, people's votes thrown out. Uh, people were a-, a few points less likely to support that person, and then you could say, "Oh, well, I mean, I sure hope so. Like, yeah. so no one should support that person." But we know that's not the reality. Yeah. But but it was in that sense reassuring to hear to see that independence, if reminded about this, you know, would make. Uh, would apply an electoral penalty uh, towards those who just don't respect our democracy and are willing uh, to for their own power uh, to overturn results. And and so I, I think it is important to remind there there is a, a quality in, in America as we just kind of we move forward and um, but 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 it's just amazing the things that it seems like in our collective memory like quickly get forgotten and and, and so we should not allow. You know as we 're running against all these different maga politicians in you know wisconsin and and Michigan and Pennsylvania, and obviously Trump first and foremost who who kind of you know catalyzed you know January sixth as a you know criminal conspiracy and um but uh but others who supported that um we cannot let people forget that um but we also i think don't have to choose between. An economic message, or an abortion message, or a democracy message—like you know—we have to speak to all those things. And as you said, freedom is a good frame that that really touches on all those things. And um, but I also a big proponent, and, um, and I've really advised candidates on this of really juxtaposing how they are focused on you know trying to take you know pass abortion bans and and, you know, a return of election for their own power, whereas we're here to stop that and want to help your family be able to get ahead, help hardworking people be able to get ahead. And so we're, we're speaking to both issues, um, but we're really making clear, you know, what the other side is trying to do, um, whereas, you know, we're, we, we want to prevent that, but, but we really do want to make sure that, you know, people, uh, you know, if you work hard, you should be able to, to get ahead. There's a, you know, a middle-class promise in America that we got to make sure is, is really real and reflected and, 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 you know, that we keep being able to do things, uh, that, that give people, you know, a, a, a better opportunity uh, in our country. And so, you know, I, I, hope that will be kind of really reflected in the, in the message that our, you know, the party has nationally, but, you know, it's in our power, as you said, with, you know, indivisible Chicago, Russell rising, you know, we create opportunities for people to be able to talk to voters in our neighboring states and and so we'll be able to bring that message as individually as all of us as activists on our on our facebook posts in our canvassing and phone bank you know in, in whatever way that we we get involved in with indivisible chicago restaurant rest of all rising, there there are going to be a lot of ways for
1: you're generous to include Facebook posts in there. I, I would scratch that because you're just talking in no. your bubble in Facebook. You need to knock uh, on doors. Although I
2: also, yes, you do need to do that. But, <laughs> but, but I, I will say before you that you know that the people you, you went to high school with, you went to college with, you know that they they trust. What someone they know says more than any ad they'll see. Mm -hmm. So I guess it depends on the network you have. Like if you, you know, just grew up in a blue area, they've always lived in a blue. You're right, and Mm -hmm. you know, you might have that. But I would say Twitter is more of a bubble usually. But like Facebook, you are actually catching some people who are less political, and um, uh, you know that 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 can get some eye-opening information that again because it comes from you they'll trust it more. So so I you know I, I, mm-hmm. I there's there definitely the quality of it. probably most of our friends are are people that share our our beliefs at that point at this point but um but yeah but with Facebook we do have some old friends that you know Maybe um, either they, they think a little differently or they're just like not that political one way or another. So they're not interested in Twitter, but but they're on there and uh, and they can get some info that's helpful.
1: Yeah, you're right about that's that. You know, I, I went to a high school reunion uh, this summer in small town, Michigan, and I was... Uh, leery about it because it's a pretty Mm -hmm. conservative place. I didn't think it was when I grew up there, but it clearly is now. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I was a little leery of it. And I was amazed by the number of people who came up to me and said they thanked me for what I put on Facebook and for the Mm -hmm. activism that I do. I'm with you. But all of them, and there were probably... You know, 10, 12 people who made a point of talking to me about it. And with only one exception, they all whispered to me or pulled me aside to tell me they didn't want to say it publicly in front of other former classmates, Mm -hmm. which was disturbing (laughs) to me. (laughs) But, um, yeah, you're right. They're out there and they should hear us uh, for sure. They should.
2: Uh, But you're right. the, The knocking on, you know, taking action, the knocking on doors, you know, yeah. Posting on Facebook is no replacement for that. We, we, we do need to push ourselves for, uh, you know, the, the actual volunteering and, and uh, you know, the phone calls, texting, knocking on doors. So I, I agree with you as well.
1: Yeah, I knew you would. And and also, <laughs> I, I this is where we have to say, if you have not knocked on doors before, two things you need to know. One is we don't knock on doors of known Trumpies. This is not about arguing at the doorstep of anybody. These are people who we've identified as having voted uh, for Democratic candidates in the past who we have reason to think will be supporting our cause, who need to feel more confident about their vote for the Biden ticket and uh, the importance of them coming out and voting. Now, sometimes we may get it wrong and you might get a house where somebody doesn't agree with you. You thank them and walk away. So knocking on doors, making phone calls is not about arguing. That is one common misconception. Yeah. And the second important thing is whether you go to Rust Belt Rising or Indivisible Chicago, we will train you. We'll pair you up with somebody who's experienced and knows how to do it and goes with you door to door or or, uh, stays with you in the phone room while you're making all your phone calls. So um, the fact that you've never done it before, not a problem. We can take care of that. And often uh, we'll even do some training together, right?
2: So, uh, Absolutely truly no one does it better than than you know you and other individual Chicago leaders really helps people be confident and yeah, and then as you mentioned, Rest All Rides and there's a lot of trainings on this too, where just helping people be able to, you know, talk to our less political neighbors and uh, and yeah, you're never sent out to to go you know, yeah, you should never be arguing. That's not what it's about, but it's about sharing why we care, you know, why we are taking action. So, you know, when people are like, oh, I got to do research. No, you don't have to do research. You have to know why, why this is important to you. And sharing personal experiences is the most effective effective thing we can do. Um, so, uh, yeah, it really, you know, you go knock doors in Wisconsin, like people are always glad they did because, you know, folks are nice and they, we can talk as neighbors, not as. You know, activists. You know, just just as, as people yeah. um, sharing. You know, you know, I care about this because of my grandkids, or you know, my kids, mm-hmm. or you know, or my sister, my brother. You know, just that, uh, and, and I love that. And that's that, that. That that is what democracy should be all about.
1: Yeah, that's what democracy should be about. And My favorite line is, "Well, I'll tell you why I'm standing on your doorstep on a Saturday or
2: mm-hmm.
3: Sunday." You know, mm-hmm.
1: here's why I came Great. to Wisconsin for a weekend, and uh, no yeah. one has ever. Whether it's Wisconsin or Iowa or Michigan or other states, Indiana at one time was even worth going to. Uh, or Any other state I've campaigned in, uh, canvassed in, no one has ever said to me, you're from Chicago, what are you doing here? Go away. <laughs> never, never. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they all welcome the fact that you came to spend the time and talk to them about our country. It's very yeah. rewarding. And you can sign up at IndivisibleChicago.com, dot or com, com yeah. too. There you go. We're going to take a break uh, to uh, run a couple of spots. I am Marge Halperin here for Edwin Eisendrath today, talking with Paul Kendrick of Rust Belt Rising. If you want to join the conversation, you can call us at 773-763-9278. If it's easier for you, make it 773-763-WCPT, because that's the station you're listening to.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820.
1: No, you're listening to The Big Picture with Marge Halperin. Just as good. Maybe today, even better. I'm not good at uh, tooting my own horn. Why would I? Edwin is excellent. He's taking a well deserved day off. I am your political pundit, communications expert, host of the day, talking with Paul Kendrick, who is executive director of Rust Belt Rising which is a campaign organization that focuses on activating the grassroots, does some great polling and messaging work, as well as turning out activists who can knock on doors, make phone calls, and help win elections. They focus on the Midwest states primarily, maybe entirely. Paul, do I have that right?
2: Yeah, we focus on the Great Lakes states of uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana, and so training leaders, particularly candidates running for state and local office, but all activists, you know, county chairs, uh, those who are volunteering on campaign staffing them, Um, and so we, yeah, helping particularly on on, on messaging, helping Democrats message more effectively, but also understand the strategies for running a really good modern campaign and um, how to be able to, you know, reach and turn out voters. So uh, just trying to help Midwest leaders learn from each other across states. You know, there's a campaign in Pennsylvania that you can learn from here in Illinois and someone in Ohio can learn from something you did. And and so just a a community of practice, a school to really help us uh, ultimately make ourselves understood as the party of working people again and and be able to not just, you know, hold the blue wall, but continue making progress in areas where, you know, the democratic brand is damaged. um, And uh, we want to make sure our leaders are really able to to shine and connect with people and, and be able to organize for change. Well,
1: Yep. All that is important work, and especially in the states you mentioned, which not coincidentally are the ones, uh, most <laughs> of the ones that will decide this next election, as did the last election. And, you know, that national polling comes out and uh, people panic and the national head to head that I think was quoted, in fact, um, in the newscast we heard at the top of the hour, not not so relevant. But when you see the poll that was out oh a month or so ago, that showed Biden losing in several of the key swing states, that's when I start to break a sweat. But you're on the ground in these states. Uh, wh- what is happening in, say, Pennsylvania, which is critical?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's good to break a sweat, um, not to despair or panic. Um, polls in January are usually found to then, is it's, that's when they get predictive of, of what could happen in November. So they're not predictive yet, but there's no question that we have work to do, that we're no question that we're not in the position that, you know, you'd ideally like to uh, be in and, and that I think is deserved uh, in terms of the good things that have that have happened. Um, so, I, you know, what's going on on the ground? You know, I think that we have a lot of work to do on really localizing uh, so that people see it in their own lives. the, things that president biden has done and and so they're happening all the time you know this week uh you know an, an ev uh within the last couple of weeks you know announcement of an electric vehicles uh facility that, that's going to be you know opening in illinois and uh and you know this week i heard of um you know a, a bridge in in pennsylvania that's finally going to get you know repaired that people have been talking about for a long time you know we have to connect like those things aren't just like happening <laughs> you yep. know that the president biden passed laws that have allowed uh people to get good jobs that you can't outsource rebuilding our country and, and creating opportunity um and you know he passed this to get prescription drug prices down and so um, so, you know, I think all politics is local and, and we have to connect and, and make it real in people's lives, um, you know, in terms of the economic recovery and, and, and people being able to, you know, get jobs again and, you know, life getting back to normal and, and hopefully better than before. Um, and so but, you know, I, I I do think yeah, there is, yes, a sense on the ground that, uh, you know, t- And again, I think it's related to the the price jump that came after the pandemic that, um, oh, you know, uh, the economy is not good. Like and and you don't want to tell people that that are having a hard time, like, oh, everything is great. Like we have more progress to make, you know, Um, but the reality is. Or are we making progress yeah we are do we want to go back to the you know the, the chaos and really the destruction of of the trump era like no we do not and uh, so you know I, I just think people aren't necessarily giving the economy credit and, and and we have to be empathetic to you know different challenges that they that they face and not like write that away but um but the reality is I mean I do think the media has been just kind of like hungry to be very negative about Kinds mm-hmm. of things, and um, it may, you know, I, I do think it might warp the macro sense people have of what's going on. But, um, but you can't dismiss anyone's micro sense of of their own lives, and, and and so we just have to lay out like what we're what you know we're for in terms of making sure their kids' school is funded, that their water is clean, uh, that 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 you know that healthcare is affordable, uh, that their retirement is protected, uh, that that you know a woman has able to make the decisions of the most, you know, uh, personal and and, and and biggest decisions of when and whether to grow a family. I mean, these are the things that will be decided by the election. Um, so I think we need people thinking about that. And until they are, they're more just answering presidential approval questions of like, you know, do I like them in a vacuum? And, you know, some Democrats still kind of wish casting for a different kind like, you know, it's going to be President Biden versus, you know, former President Trump. And like, that's the decision people you know are going to have to make. And I, and I think, you know, the, the people will ultimately choose President Biden, but they have to, you know, we have to talk to him.
1: Right. That's right. Um, and I think that's an important point you raise about not arguing with the micro, as you put it. Um, I'm a mm-hmm. fan of communications, progressive communications guru, Annette. Schenker Osario, who um, holds these bi-weekly messaging sessions. They do a lot of polling and uh, research to tell us what messages really work. And arguing with somebody who feels, as she puts it, that they have more month than paycheck is a losing Mm -hmm. argument. Um, And uh, arguing with somebody who maybe doesn't pay $6 a dozen for eggs anymore but still thinks – $2, $3 $2, $3 is too much, and they still don't have enough money. You can't debate the prices have gone down when they still feel the pressure. Uh, that's basically yeah. what lost us the election in 2016, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a, a dear friend uh, who is Republican. There's some in my circles. There <laughs> are a lot. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, in in the night of the 2016 election, she called me and she said, Maybe now Democrats will pay attention to the working class. And I was stunned. I'm like, wait, we're the party of the working class. We're the party of unions and minimum wage and, uh, you know, increases and all these things. But we had missed a huge swath of the working class that was angry and afraid, I think. And some of that fear is still out there. And we have to answer it with the look to a better future, as you said.
2: Yeah. 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 And uh, I mean, Russell Rising, you know, the work I've been doing, you know, why we were founded, it's really been, you know, to take on that question and to answer it and to make things better on that front. But I, but I think what also happened in 2016 that's relevant here is that Trump told a story, and that story resonated with um, a lot of, you know, Rust Belt voters, mm-hmm. um, you know, and particularly, you know, white working-class, you know, voters, um, you know, when he talked about, uh, you know, essentially like scapegoating, like saying, you know, it's because of immigrants, it's because of, you know, these elites that, uh, you know, that we've had the job lost and they sold you out. And and so it just, we need to understand that, like, politics is about story. We need to tell the real story (laughs) that there have been, you know, out of the corporations that, you know, made different decisions that, that they chose to, you know, move back to that communities, you know, and 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 who's fighting for those corporations to have the effort, who's fighting for Wall Street versus who's fighting for Main Street. And we believe, you know, that unions and that small businesses should be able to grow and thrive. And that's who we're fighting for. And so, you know, we need a story, too. And, uh, and 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 uh, yeah, you could argue the 2016 campaign, or you know, the kind of the thread had a little uh, had kind of been lost. And there was a lot of policy, but policy isn't a story. Like we need a story mm-hmm. that explains why we need the policy. And um, and uh, you know, and, and we need messengers to to tell it. Who uh, you know, who again are are trusted, and that's what we try to cultivate uh, with Rust Belt Rising. Um, but yeah, it's really important to understand that. You know, emotion is part of politics and, and it's not just about, you know, the, the policy papers. We need people in substance in office to, to advance the policies. But, um, but you know, we, we need to center working people in our narrative. And, um, and when we do that, when people see themselves uh, in, in you know, the Democratic Party and what we're fighting for, who we are um, and, and who we're fighting for um, and, and what we're fighting for, then, um, then they're reminded of the things that they do like a lot Democrats, and then they are more likely uh, to to vote for us. And, and again, we have a big coalition, and everyone matters in it. And you know, young people, you know, have to feel that, that we're fighting for their better future and yes. and uh, see themselves as part of it. And, and different communities of color, obviously, are you know so vital and need to be listened to and heard, and, and 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 also see themselves as part of you know for this you know a future where all of us can thrive. And so you know all of this is really important, but, um, but, you know, finding those threads that connect us all and the things that we all want for our families uh, is, is, is really vital.
1: Yep. That's for sure. Wherever we live, whatever our class, race, et cetera, Mm -hmm. uh, we all want the same freedoms for our family. And the only piece I would add to your short uh, story there is there's one thing that's risen much faster than the price of the daily goods that we buy at the grocery store, and that is corporate profits. And yeah. uh, when you see that extra price of the gas pump and then you find out the oil company's profits and the salaries and bonuses for their top executives have gone up um, triple digit sometimes percent, then then you see who's really responsible. Um, it's gouging. Yeah, um, I yeah then you think to, about who mm-hmm.
2: to trust. You know, yes. is it is it Trump the guy palling around with those CEOs, uh, or is it you know Scranton Joe, <laughs> and is it you know Tammy Baldwin and Sherrod Brown and um, and and Gretchen Lauren Underwood Whitmer. and you know Gretchen Whitmer and you know and so right. yeah that's the key.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we just lost the caller I was about to go to, but if you want to join the conversation, uh, we have oh, a couple sorry. of folks on the line. Sorry, sometimes it takes a couple of minutes to get to a break, but we'll do our best to work you in. You can call us at 773-763-9278, 763-WCPT, and join the conversation with Paul Kendrick of Rust Belt Rising. How... How impactful do you think the abortion question will be in these swing states? I have to admit, as heartbreaking as these stories are, I am grateful that uh, the Center for Reproductive Rights is bringing forth these women in Kentucky and Texas, and I'm sure more will be coming, who have uh, reasons to seek an abortion in states with laws that are not only repressive but vague and you can't tell uh, what uh, what they what their options are to protect their own health, even though everyone says protect the health. Well, everyone doesn't, but they're starting to say protect the health of the mother. Um, and yet, when it comes down to it, Ken Paxton, the AG in Texas, is uh, stopping this woman from getting uh, the abortion that would protect her and her ability to have more children in the future. Uh, I think that helps keep the uh, distinction alive, right?
2: Yeah, I I believe it really is the number one question of this election or we should make sure it is the number one question of this election. Republicans will not want to talk about it. Uh, You know, they overturned Roe and they want this to go away. Uh, But it can't because the national abortion ban is on the table. And when Michigan voters understood that a constitutional question was at stake, they turned out. And that's part of why we got a you know, try back to Michigan when, you know, the referendum and, you know, they tried to change things for the referendum in Ohio and, you know, and, and, and voters, you know, even in states that voted for Trump uh, twice, you know, they, they, they protected reproductive freedom. And, and Kansas is, is, you know, is, is the, the the most uh, remarkable yeah. example. So, you know, this isn't just us saying, you know, we, ha- we, we do need to share these stories um, and because this is, Uh, you know, a hellish uh, reality of of suffering being imposed on women. I mean, this is, it's infuriating to think about this case that, uh, you know, the Texas politician guy is, you know, going to these judges to make the decision about, you know, about this one woman's health care when, when she knows what she needs to do for her health, you know, to survive. Um, And, uh, and, 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 but, you know, she should never have to explain the the reasons and so that is the like dystopian reality and and you know and activists like us we we warned about it people maybe you know not everyone believes but like but now we're living in it and luckily we're in illinois but you know when you talk to uh you know the, the people doing amazing work at southern illinois planned parenthood you know they they're helping women with the logistics from coming from all over the country, all over this region, all over the Heartland and, and, and down south, um, you know, just trying to get to Illinois for the care that they need. Um, so it's a really important cause to, to support because that's, uh, you know, it creates a, a huge strain in trying to meet that demand and help people get the care they need. But look, like that's, you know, what's at stake. And, uh, and, and I'll say it until I'm blue in the face. Like if they get the trifecta that we got, um, you know, when Biden came in, they, they will pass national abortion. Their, their base will not let them do anything less than that. that. That's what, you know, guys like Mike Johnson, that's why what they're in Washington to do. Um, and, you know, Trump overturned Roe, he will gladly sign it. Um, so, you know, we got to get active and get out there. And it's just, it's not hyperbole. It's not political. It's just the reality and the, and the scary prospect we face. And I wish we didn't have this fight, but we do. And so we have to Take it up and do all we can on it.
1: That's right. You don't, we say this every critical election. You don't want to wake up the next morning thinking you could have done more. I want to add two um, plugs here. When you talk about the great people in Illinois working to support women um, seeking access Mm -hmm. to health care, we have the Midwest. Access Project here in Illinois uh, in Chicago, maybe not so well known, but it is uh something that I support vigorously and have for years because they train medical providers in abortion procedure that is a doctor who gets their degree at a religious college, say loyola they won't they aren't allowed to study the techniques. Um, for abortion. So the Midwest Access Project will train them and create more doctors who can provide the care, which is critical as we become a resource state. And then there's the Midwest Access Coalition, which has volunteers who escort women who come here or house them if you have an extra room and want to host a woman who's coming from out of state, uh, help her get the care that she needs in Illinois that she can't get at home. Um, those are two critical support services, better than the Janes of the 60s, but not as good as it was while we had Roe v. Wade to protect us all over the country. That's for sure. We do have a caller. Steve is on the line from Park Ridge, uh, who wants to talk to us about this stark choice ahead. Steve, thanks for joining us.
4: Yes. Hi. Yes. Um, I, I agree that abortion and choice
5: is a huge issue, and it favors our progressive cause. But On top of that, I'd like to uh, nominate autocracy versus democracy and banning guns. and.
3: uh
1: We just lost Steve. But I think he raises a good point um, that we got enough of to respond to. Um, We talked about that a little bit in the first half hour, um, but the difference between the country that Trump envisions and the country Biden envisions couldn't be uh, more clear to those of us who are paying attention. You know, one thing that uh, ties these two topics together for me is when you hear Trump talking about invoking the Insurrection Act on day one, remember, that's the only day he's going to be a dictator. He could do a lot of harm in one day. And if he invokes this, it allows him to use the military against civilian demonstrations. Well, the first thing that came to my mind is the Women's March which happened pretty immediately after he took office the first time. And uh, believe me, women will come out again uh, in full force. Uh, I was in Washington. Chicago had a tremendous rally, as did in March, as did uh, women across the country. So is he going to send tanks out against women, uh, moms, grandmas, grandchildren? Because, you know, the whole family is going to get in on, on this if it has to happen. Um, he could. He's kind of saying he would. He is saying he would. So we need to be really clear about the the kind of ruler that Trump intends to be the second time. He's, you know, the old saying people tell you tell you who they are. Believe them. Uh, the first time, well, we didn't. Maybe, you know, we kept thinking, well, he'll be presidential or he'll understand, you know, how to behave. And he, no, none of that. Right. So the second time. Uh, A lot of people think that could be our last election, that he would then block future elections, which maybe would be in his power. We don't know. We don't want it tested. We certainly don't want it tested in the Supreme Court that is of his making, which is what we have right now. So um, women need to understand how much is on the line right now in this autocracy versus democracy um, standoff in our country. Why, why are people supporting autocracy? Do they really not understand, or do they think it's good for the country? This paternal leadership appeals to some people, right?
2: Yeah. it's um, Again, I, I, I do think we need to remind America that Trump's presidency ended with trying to overturn a free and fair election uh, with January 6th, just images that we never imagined seeing in America, and um, yeah, just trying to throw out the the, the, the votes of, of you know particularly black voters in Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta, and um, and, and and so yeah, I, I do think you know if, yeah if he gets the controls again, you know he'll be working with some sophisticated people to really not leave anything the chance, and to be much more aggressive, even more aggressive uh, in in really curbing uh, people's ability, uh, you know, to exercise their voice in democracy. And so, you know, we just have to remind people that we're, we believe that politicians shouldn't get to choose who gets to vote. You know, that, that that we choose our politicians, and and that right has to be protected. And when someone's really shown that they're willing. Uh, to, uh, to 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 try to you know take us backwards and, and dismantle the most fundamental American ideals that we people have fought and died for um, that that person should never hold power and you know and and, and Trump is going to be on trial and whatnot but you know at the end of the day he, he's he's going to be the nominee and, and he could win and then so you know we just we need people to activate to to prevent that, that we have that, that chance to be able to prevent that. Um, and so what do people see in him? You know, that's a tough question to answer, but, um, um, but, you know, I, I, think they're thinking that some of the frustrations they have with the economy, you know, that he somehow can magically solve it. And, and we know that's ridiculous. This like con man who yeah. <laughs> plunged us into a recession. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, in kind of uncertain times, I think people are, yeah, turning to someone that they think, you know, can just, you know, uh, just have the control and, and and do that, and uh, and so we have to remind them of that we're valued, uh, that that we're. Um, that it's valuable to have the kind of wise and and steady leadership that president biden has his ability to know how government works to to work with different people to get things done to pass bipartisan bills and and you know to just kind of get politics out of our lives a little bit if we don't want it and and, and know that uh you know it's being run by by by, uh you know the government has as good people in it that are they're doing the right thing that are, that are making progress. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I just don't think we want to feel out of control of our lives again, uh, the way that we did in, in 16 to 20. And so, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a frustrating question of why people turn to Trumpism, but I'd say the biggest indicator is, uh, or, and well, there's, there's a couple of big, I mean, some people that, you know, of the way he primes kind of racial resentment and you know and, and, mm-hmm. and like the wokeness stuff and all that, but 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 I think the other one is just about pessimism. Um, I think where there is pessimism, there is an appeal in right wing popular populism of uh, you know of Trumpism, um, and where there's optimism, where people believe things can be better, we can create good new jobs, around clean energy, we can um, you know there, there there can be a good future for our community, and, and we don't need to just look to the past and, and kind of fairy tales of of, of that it could magically return. And even though it wasn't actually as good for everyone, no. <laughs> people would like to imagine, but 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 we can have a better future, then I think people are really willing to embrace kind of liberalism, uh, you know, and 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 President Biden. So, you know, I, I do think we need to evoke hope and, and help people have hope, um, because, when they just think things are kind of doomed for their town or you know for for them, um, then then you know Trump's narrative can really take hold for people. Then they're angry, and we're we're you know we're we're calling on folks better angels. It's not always easy, but um, but you know I I do have that belief in Americans that that's there, and we saw uh, you know from Obama and from Biden to, to draw that out, and then we have to do that again.
1: Well, that's as hopeful as uh, anything we've seen since uh, Obama's hope and change uh, slogans. (laughs) You know, one thing that surprised me, we just have a couple minutes left, is when you talk about bipartisanship, I, I know that polls show that people want Congress to be productive. They want to stop the bickering and the infighting. And yet, when the GOP spent however many weeks they spent looking for a speaker and Outwardly punishing McCarthy and anyone else uh, who would attempt to pass legislation using bipartisan votes—that was well. That's the crime that got lost McCarthy his job. They forgave Johnson because I think they knew they couldn't get anybody else to be speaker, and they were stuck with him. But they were angry. How dare you work with Democrats? Why doesn't that work against them in a more uh, aggressive manner? In in 30
3: seconds.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are so few competitive districts uh, in America because of gerrymandering that thus people are more, you know, worried and looking kind of to their... To, to you know, someone far right of them, and and so they just have the pressure from the base, and so they want to you know get out there and, and, and fight with the Democrats, and 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 there is an asymmetrical element to this that yes, both parties you know we've become more progressive, they've become more conservative, but they've become much more conservative, and, and this is found in like Democratic, you know really do want people to work together, and I think most Americans again do, but unfortunately you know it just. Those Republican politicians really let, listen to their base, letting, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, the age, like letting them drive the thing. And uh, and so they get more extreme. And so we in this election, you know, have to hold on to the middle as we did in the midterms and, and get on our base, of course. Um, but also just have that, you know, fairly moderate, less political, less partisan person say, you know what, I'm more comfortable because I don't want to hand the government over uh, to these MAGA folks. Uh, that are extreme that want to take away my freedoms, and uh, and so that's what uh, that's what we have to do because people do want folks working together to make their lives better.
1: Well, that's what we're doing uh, in 2024, and I hope uh, folks will work with Paul at Rust Belt Rising and work with those of us at Indivisible Chicago. Swing left, wherever you want to do your work, just make sure you work. So much uh, to talk about, Paul. Thank you for your time and your insights and all the work that you're doing with Rust Belt Rising, which is rustbeltrising.com if you want to learn more. And I'll be back after this break to talk about... Uh, Our mayor, talk about progressives in power. Uh, what, What do we do once we get there? That's the question for Greg Hines, our columnist from Cranes, who will be with us in just a couple minutes here on WCPT.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: I hate to argue with the voice of God, as we might call the voiceovers radio. That's what they call it in theater, you know, voice of God. But anyway, uh, not Edwin Eisendrath. Clearly, uh, Ed's taken some well deserved time off. I'm Marge Halperin, happy to be here with you and talking politics on a Saturday afternoon. If you want to join us, our number is 773 763 9278 or 763 WCPT if you prefer that. That's like an old dial phone right no no one dials by the letters anymore I don't think but if you do those are our call letters so use them my guest for the next hour is crane's columnist and I'm going to say resident curmudgeon Greg Hines do you ever been introduced like that before Greg
6: Um, no I can't say
1: (laughs) maybe (laughs) only only behind your back maybe that'd be terrible uh, and I, but I think you're probably proud of that role, and that's kind of a journalist's role anyway, is to be skeptical, uh, as you are, and it usually leads you to a pretty good story. So thanks for having that sense and sensibility and for all the uh, that you've contributed to news.
6: Uh,
1: welcome to WCPT. Hey,
6: I do this. I do, uh, I do uh, this uh, station every so often. Not this show, but uh, I do Joe and do this show a lot.
1: Sure. Yep. Um, Makes sense that you would and should. Well, happy to have you on a Saturday afternoon. Um, We're here now to talk about local politics. I I sort of teased this as we finished our last hour talking about national politics with the idea that um, uh, progressives are fighting for a bigger piece of national progress and uh, getting it with Biden. And uh, here in Chicago, we've elected the most progressive mayor. Many will argue, well, I think you could argue logically that this is the first true progressive to be on the fifth floor of City Hall. I would say at least it's the first mayor Uh, Brandon Johnson is the first mayor who is not in the old daily mold. However much it was tweaked by subsequent mayors, Uh, they all ran government pretty much the same way, in my observation. But Brandon Johnson wants to do it differently and has tried to do it differently, but has not been so successful, even his own A longtime ally, Jeanette Taylor, the alder of the 20th Ward, recently said, uh, We weren't ready to be on the fifth floor. We, being the progressive movement, um, she feels that we don't, she said, we don't know enough about how to govern, uh, which, gotta admit, whatever about the daily model. Uh they knew how to run things, but they didn't run things to the benefit of all. And, we'll, you know, could go down that road about the problems with that model. But Johnson has different problems. What, why do you think he is struggling to get
6: a grip on the office? Um, Marge, because, uh, because of there's a difference between running for office and actually running the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a difference between focusing on process and uh, actually delivering results. Um, uh, Rob Manuel, I know he's probably not a, a terribly popular figure in your book, but he uh, mm-hmm. was smart clicking a lot of ways, once told me that the, it's hard for an outsider to appreciate just how much uh, being there is drinking from a full fledged fire hose 24 uh, 7, uh, 365. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, he used to say that uh, that the last thing he checked before he went to bed every day and the first thing he checked when he woke up in the morning is how many people have been killed overnight. Mm. Uh, That kind of tells you something about the gravity and and difficulty of the job. Um, uh, In Mr. Johnson's case, um, I think the... uh, The clashes with the business community over new taxes and uh, and uh, mandates that uh, the mayor says are needed to help working folks. The businesses say, "Hey, cost us money is going to make us reconsider whether we hire people in this town." That was kind of predictable. Like the fight over the uh, over increasing the real estate transfer tax. Um, uh, That one was you you knew that one was coming. Uh, the difficult one for him, the, the fire hose moment for this mayor, has been the immigration crisis, where you have tens of thousands, 23,000 in change as of this morning. Um, uh, migrants, almost all of them from Vestal, well, who have been shipped up here uh, from other jurisdictions. Democratic jurisdictions, I have to say. Uh, it's not just Greg Abbott, the Republican governor, doing this. We're getting people from Colorado, from El Paso, which is a Democratic one city. Um, and even though this has been happening for a year and a half, the city of Chicago clearly was not prepared to deal with with the uh, with the influx. And that has created undeniable tensions between parts of Johnson's base, uh, between progressives who say, hey, these people are here, we gotta deal with them, we gotta open our hearts. And, uh, and longer-term residents, many of them, black and African-American, who say, hey, you know, I believe in helping other people. How about helping the people who are here first? Uh, don't we have responsibility to take care of our uh, unemployed and our uh, unhoused people before we uh, label all of this help on, uh, on uh, outsiders? How he handles that tension has been very difficult, and I think that's at the root of much of what's uh, afflicting America at the moment.
1: Yeah, I think so. It's uh, Somebody said to me, it's kind of his COVID. Uh, Lightfoot started uh, strongly in addressing COVID, and then it sort of fell apart uh, on her as she, you know, dropped the ball on several points and failed to, uh, shockingly failed to see how it would disproportionately impact people of color. Um, for a black mayor to not see that coming was, you know,
6: yeah, I'm not, that's I'm not sure that's entirely, entirely fair to her. I seem to recall that when we got the vaccine early on, that there were days when only certain people in certain uh, west side and south side neighborhoods would get the vaccine. If you looked on the north side, regardless of your color, you were out of luck. So uh, I'm not sure that's totally, I totally agree with that. But anyhow, I, I take your mm-hmm. point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, she certainly could have done more and the community wanted her to do more, uh, I would say. Um, it, I, but But this question about the migrants migrants versus the existing homeless population is a painful one. Um, while you're right to say that he didn't have the strategy for it, I, as you know, with my communications, I have a communication strategy background. That's my expertise, One of you know, my strongest expertise. I like to think I can do more than one thing, but that's my strongest. I, I am appalled by the way he has messaged around this whole issue, his lack of transparency, this issue around the uh, encampment in Brighton Park. First of all, the fact that he's allowed it to be called an encampment and didn't come up with a better name than Tent. I mean, when he first Uh talked about doing this, activists... Uh, on my end of the spectrum were like, how do we know it'll be safe in the winter? I'm like, come on. Remember the hospital that was set up outside of McCormick Place in advance of COVID. Luckily, we didn't need it. But no one thought you'd freeze in the winter in that hospital space. There must have been a way to explain that there's a technology to make this a safe home. But as it turned out, anyway, is not safe because they didn't do the environmental report. And then the shenanigans with releasing the report, I, I was truly appalled, even after the number of communications blunders that he's had and that I've talked about on this station and elsewhere. Um, it, I I don't understand. He said he would release that report at the end of the week, and then at 5 o'clock Friday, they tell reporters, go file a FOIA if you want it. In the end, they did release it a few hours later. But what a mess!
6: Yeah, and they and they don't give it to the governor who's paying who's paying the bill.
1: Right, and when he saw it, he did what he should do, which is stop construction. He did what Johnson should have done. I, the whole, th- this is at the core of your comment, isn't it? About the difference between being an activist and, and governing. And he's still sort yeah, of I mean, acting like the old um, CTU organizer, isn't he? Uh,
6: yeah, it's it's, it's it's much easier to, to sit on the side and say, do this, do that. You're not here. You're, you're, you're schooling up than it is to actually be in charge and have to come up with a program that uh, is going to have flaws invariably and then deal with the, the criticism thereof. Um, uh, I think the court... Difficulty here is the there in some ways he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. Uh, um, he's clearly made a decision on principle, and I have to agree with him on principle, that golly uh, god, Chicago has all been a city of elegance. We don't turn our back on people who are hurting. We're going to take care of these people. And I'm sorry if that means that some other people who need help, too, are going to have to wait a little bit longer. And let's look at the at the, at the upside here. Uh, we need, we have labor charges in Chicago, and we're losing people. We need good, productive citizens, and most of these people are coming from the middle-class people who could step into jobs if they had the necessary permission from the federal government. They can help us and provide a long-term benefit. And I'm sorry if that... If that pushes any, anybody's nose out of the joint, but that's just the way it's going to be. He hasn't really done that. I mean, he's kind of said that in press conferences, but he, but if I were him, I would have uh, assembled a group of faith leaders and given a big speech, or gone before some kind of prestigious civic group and said, "You yeah, know, this is this is what we're doing. This is why we need to do it. and Explain it all." I, instead, it's like he, he wants to do it, but at the same time, he doesn't want to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you gotta have you gotta have you gotta have your heart in it.
1: Well, and, you know, for the charismatic leader that, you know, his reputation says he is, he has failed in what you're describing as basic leadership. He should do a direct-to-camera video that says, you know, we are a sanctuary city in every sense. Whether you're a longtime resident who's homeless and can't um, support your family and has been trying, you know, or whether you are a new— new to our city and stuck in the floor of a of a police station you deserve the best our city has to offer and I'm doing what I can to you you know we could all write that speech but can't he write that speech he's a great communicator right I I'm just astounded that he has not set a tone about this whole, uh, migrant thing. There's supposed to be 10 buses from Texas this morning. You had a new number about how many migrants, and I don't know if that reflects...
6: Yeah. That, that, that's another four or 500 people,
1: yeah. Yeah, I, you know, so... Uh, and I've been volunteering. I'm in District 1, and, and there's a group of folks who do way, way more than I do. People all over the city are stepping up to volunteer. Why doesn't he make a speech about that? In every single police district, there is a team... Some are bigger teams than others because I know I've been down to Grand Crossing and some other areas where, where there hasn't been quite the depth of volunteering, understandably. But in every district, there's somebody who's stepping up to provide food and clothing and support and take they drive people to uh, medical appointments. In District 1, every Friday morning, they drive them to a nearby park and uh, th- where they can take a shower. I, you know, um, people who just yeah. go on Amazon wish list and buy dozens of pairs of pants and underwear for people. Like, w- look at how we're stepping up. This is a city with heart. Have you ever heard the mayor talk like that?
6: Not really. Um, what a loss. To be perfectly, what honest, to be perfectly honest, the mayor... The mayor seems to enjoy the ceremonial aspects of his job. Uh, I mean, he loves to show up at a Beyonce concert or a, uh, <laughs> uh, a, a city football championship. He's not so good at giving speeches and giving media interviews. Uh, and they, they do meet every so often with the uh, whole press conferences. Uh, Lord, uh, I'll give him some credit for that or the end of her tenure, Lightfoot almost never had their press conferences. But when's the last time you really i done for a long, in-depth interview with anybody who could just kind of go all this stuff and push them on the fine print? Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a difficult transition uh, between, like I said, between running for the office and actually running the office. And I could give you some other examples, too. Um, and the other story I wrote about this week—I'm not sure uh, you a heard uh, about, but you should—is what happened over at World, at World Business Chicago this week. Mm. World Business Chicago is the city's corporate recruitment arm. There's the folks who are in charge of. Getting good jobs good jobs for us all, bringing in companies so that uh, so that uh, we can pay our taxes and support sanctuary city stuff and uh, and send our kids to school, or whatever. Well, the whole leadership of a world of Chicago effectively walked out. Uh, yeah. They were kind of polite about it for the most part, but one of them overly... let the cat out of the bag.
1: Overly polite. What? What's the backstory? Because I, I agree with you that that matters. Um, Chamber of Commerce is a little more knee-jerk uh, in opposition uh, to what I think are some of the city's interests. But World Business Chicago, I would agree, is just what you said. And they were so kind about it um, that I was like, "What? What just happened?" I, I'm not.
6: Well, one of the one. One of them. One of, them, one of them, Mike, uh, Mark Tabby, who's uh, who was the. Uh um tech guy. Uh was was a little more honest, uh, at least in public than the others. The others they have careers and jobs and, you know, <laughs> they still live in this town. I can understand I would hope not, and I can understand why they why they keep the time square. But then they essentially said, Hey, um uh this mayor really isn't interested in uh, in uh in, in job creation. Um he's more interested in, in worker equity. And uh, worker rights, and those are fine, but if you don't have a job, you're not going to be able to give, a, give the, the worker better, better benefits with the job. Um, uh, it, it has, you know, there's only so much time in the day, um, I think, in fairness in there. Uh, uh, this integrated thing has just sucked up a lot of oxygen out of his uh, administration. Um, he's had a lot of trouble finding good, qualified staff. Um, uh, they've they've found some good people, but it's taken a while. Uh, He's got a good police chief, but it took a while. He's got a good, uh, uh, has economic development uh, and planning department. but That took a long time. And they still don't have the deputy mayor for corporate outreach, which uh, is a key position. Um, uh, American, can't do it himself. And given the fact that a lot of people think he didn't expect to win, they weren't nearly as far down the road in terms of staffing up as, uh, as other candidates might've been.
1: Well, and he didn't have as much time because of the runoff, right? In fairness, uh, both, uh, well, not Lightfoot, but Emmanuel had a longer time and Lightfoot seemed to understand the wheels of government a little better, probably, and, and was preparing in advance. Uh, Apparently, although it, she was off, some of her staffing was uh, off at the beginning. But uh, we'll find out about that when we read Greg Pratt's book about her administration, right, coming out in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, but uh, for this mayor, when you when you mentioned the ceremonial. Uh, Aspects of the job, I was a little taken aback, but you know, I was also reminded of what he looked and sounded like on the night that he won, and his glee was hard to contain. I, I, I get that because it was, you know, I frankly, those of us on the left were pretty gleeful too because uh, uh, we saw Paul <laughs> Ballas is a very a very negative choice for our city. And so we're relieved that we didn't go down that law and order route. But um, nonetheless, he said something to the effect of, you know, people counted me out, never heard of me, didn't know what I was going to do or how I could make it, and look at me now, it, 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 to paraphrase. And, and I thought, well, yeah, but that was missing. It was off a beat to me. And What was missing? I guess, you know... He should have been saying to the people in the room, you all believed in me and you all made it happen. And my thanks to those of you who came out for me and worked for me. And I say that not just because I broke my ankle canvassing for him, but I think that he should have acknowledged. It wasn't a look at me now. You didn't do this by yourself, man. You know, and I and that day, it just stuck with me. And I think that carries maybe as a thread through, it's a bit of arrogance, right?
6: Well, I haven't used that word. I have to think about whether I want to use that word. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, um, uh, I will say that, uh, that, that uh, this mayor is still not very far into his term. Mm-hmm. Um, they, there is, there is, there is time to correct and time to tack and trying to hire more people, whatever. But I, have been very troubled, but how they handled this uh, this situation at 38th and uh, and uh, California uh, with the, the toxic waste uh, residue in the mm-hmm. place we were going to use. I mean, you are absolutely right. When the state came back, the EPA came back and said, "Sorry, there haven't been enough tests. Uh, and, uh, so it could be worse than we than we know, uh, and the steps have been taken oh, were adequate." You don't fight it. You don't point fingers. You don't say, oh, Prescott told us to go to that place, which he didn't do, I don't think. Mm. Uh, you say, you you, you, put, you put the right spin on and say, you know, we're in a hurry here to try to do the right thing. Uh, if we made a mistake here, fine. We'll, we'll go on and find something else. Yeah, uh, go it, back that, to the that, goal. That, 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 that mm-hmm. defensiveness. That, that, uh, uh, I mean, that's what took down Lauren Lightfoot. I mean, she had a, yeah. I she, had a she had a Donald Donald Trump's streaking her. Uh if you attacked her, she'd be on your case, she'd rip you apart, she'd never forget about it. Well, you know, if you're if you're the mayor, you have to you have to learn how to ignore that stuff and and, and get through with it. Uh, Rich Daley once famously mm-hmm. said that uh, he had a. Uh, by the end of his tenure, he had a skin that was would make a rhinoceros jealous. Uh, it was so thick.
1: Yeah, why I'm not running for office. I couldn't stand that. But
6: it, apparently, yeah, I mean that's that, that's part of learning how to do the job.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right, and and I think um, it's come out as. Defensive, Tone deaf. There are a lot of other words if you don't like the word arrogance. But it, when you talk about Lightfoot, we, we mentioned, uh, I said a little while ago that she was successful with COVID until she uh, wasn't so much. Um, but there were two key things there. One is that she stood with uh, Arwoody as her head of public health. Alison yeah. Arwoody was somebody trusted. She was somebody you could respect. She was straightforward. She was comfortable in talking. She was believable. And, uh, you know, uh, any leader needs those kind of, uh, you know, in a way, third-party validators. But, you know, experts, I I don't remember seeing him turn over his podium to people like that. Um and show us who his team is. Maybe it's because, as you said, he hasn't been able to build a very strong team, but he does have some uh, certainly recognizable leadership figures, and we should be seeing more of them. We should know who they are, and we should be seeing them and hearing from them because trust in them rubs off on the mayor. So that's one lesson I think he hasn't gotten yet. And then I think more about uh, Lightfoot and COVID and where I think there was a turning point that does relate to this sort of ceremonial part of the job. Is is, and I don't want to be petty about this, but it's stuck in my mind all these years. Remember when she got her first haircut uh, and said, "Well, uh-huh. I need it. I'm on TV." I think you know support for her and and uh, trust in her dropped pretty significantly in that moment. Whether it stayed low or not, but people are like, "Wait a minute." You know, I can't get my hair cut. You're on TV. And I thought from a PR standpoint, better you look a little disheveled because people know how hard you're working. Why should you look like you just stepped out of a a salon in the middle of COVID? Nobody looked like that in the middle of COVID. I think that was tone deaf and um, uh, that same kind of uh, lack of understanding of what your role really is. That's when you know you I
6: won't disagree with you, but we all have our veins. side. <laughs> we do, Except, excepting me, and it certainly doesn't have to do with it, with uh, getting uh, my hair clothed.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Your your uh, fancy haircut days are over, but uh, that's uh, understandable and relatable. By the way, you don't fight it. You know, that's part of your authenticity.
6: I I have bigger bigger, bigger battles to fight.
1: Right. So did she. That's exactly my point. So did she, right? And I think, you know, sometimes you show up, it's like there's a big uh, hurricane and the governor of whatever state is impacted doesn't put on a fancy suit. They show up in a jacket or shirt sleeves, right, Um, to show they're working. Anyway, that was...
6: Now, here's something for you to kick around. Um... Uh, I'm not sure I have an opinion on this, but one of the things that has hurt this mayor is the meltdown of his floor leader, Oliver uh, Calathrosa from the 5th uh, Ward, who, who was forced to resign after when, the, when he was trying to line up votes for one of the mayor's uh, initiatives in the city council. I think it was the uh, the, the Chicago Home Ordinance. <coughs> he, uh, he cornered Kerry Austin, who's his, statesman-like elderly woman who was, 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 was kind of frail, to be perfectly honest, and physically muscled her. Yeah. Uh, depending on who you believe put his hands on her. The question is, is he, he apologized, uh, said so he shouldn't have done it, uh, he went overboard, he hurt the mayor, or whatever, but the question is, did he pick a, a tactic, the, the sense of tactics like it would be, would be acceptable, you pick a signals to that effect for the boss. There's something to pick around.
1: Uh-huh. That's a good point to mull over. And luckily, I don't have to answer you instantly because we're going to stop for a break. I think you've raised a very good point, and we'll come back to that. In just a couple of minutes, if you want to join the conversation with Crane's columnist Greg Hines and me, Marge Halperin, and for Ed Eisendrath, you can give us a call, 773-763-9278 on WCPT.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820.
1: Marge Halperin here, uh, political commentator, activist with Indivisible Chicago Communications Consultant. Uh, Whether you knew my punditry from WGN-TV or my reporting on NPR or don't know me at all, you're getting to know me in these couple of hours, aren't you? Because I don't hold back. And neither does my guest, Crane's columnist, Greg Hines, who just uh, threw out an interesting point before we took our break. So you're You're raising the question of whether the uh, strong-arm tactics that then floor leader Carlos Ramirez Rosa used uh, to try to steer debate the mayor's way was authorized or not. That was kind of your point? Maybe, maybe not? You didn't know. Not not
6: authorized, but... but, uh, but I don't. I don't think Mayor Johnson would never tell uh, his 4 to push around an elderly woman. Uh, <laughs> I don't need to
1: that. Do whatever it takes uh, author, to make sure author, that author, vote.
6: But but, 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 uh, but uh, authorize in the sense that yeah, these turkeys they're, they're just getting unreasonable. Let's lean them on a little bit. Let's uh, let's push. Let's push back a little bit. Uh, words play a little bit of hardball. Yeah, that's what I mean.
1: I see. Well, I'll tell you one thing I learned uh, working in government over the years about leadership, and that is that there reaches a point uh, where the elected head of government doesn't have to tell people specifically, do this. People think they know what their boss would support or want. um, Right. And so they go ahead, and I've seen uh, lots of, well, I've seen every mayor victimized by this a little bit, where it, it, the public assumes that if your team does something, you authorized it or approved it or would approve it. Um, but people at lower levels make their own presumptions. You know, um, nobody would go to the mayor and say, do you want me to let this contract to your buddy? But they would say, oh, that's the mayor's buddy. I probably should give the contract to him or her. There is some presumption that you're doing what the mayor would want without asking. And then later, the mayor is stuck accounting for it and didn't even know it was happening. Um, Not every time, but it does certainly happen that way often. And in this case, um, charged with uh, passing a bill that they didn't have the votes for, I understand where Ramirez Rosa would be a little desperate, but also, doesn't this fall into that category that Jeanette Taylor is talking about, we're not quite ready to govern? That's the kind of thing you might do in a minority position. But when you're floor leader, it's unbecoming, you know, it's like, um, you know, you think you're Ed Burke and you can behave the way he always did, of course, caught up with him finally, but. Uh, you're not, and you don't have quite the expertise to to uh, strong arm people. So you literally, you know, in the ways that are transparent, and so you do it in the ways that get you into trouble. It, it's a lack of experience, right? Yeah, I
6: think the the, the point of tension here, and in, and in, and in Mr. Johnson is certainly not the first person in government to ever have to confront this, is that. Uh, is that uh, you need to find the balance, if you're a leader, between going out and consulting and getting everybody's opinion and giving everybody really a chance to put in their two cents that you figured an end to your conclusion, but then at a certain point, making the decision and actually doing something. Uh, there's, a, there's a time for consultation, but then there's a time for, a time for action. and Figuring out when to do it and how to do it is a is a real art. And it requires some subtlety. Uh, the professional politicians, uh, the real pros, they have it down. I mean, they, two guys meeting in you know, meeting the bar and and uh, 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 scratching your left ear, is interpreted. I'll vote for this bill if you give me that, and uh, and winking your nose is is a sign of approval or disapproval. They, don't, they know the language; they did not have to put it <laughs> in words. And,
1: um, yeah. Uh, I I think of Miriam Santos, who went to jail for telling somebody you got to belly up if they want something from her, they had to pay her. Um, that kind of blatant language uh, clearly not allowed. But was there some other signal
6: she could have sent and stayed Yeah, in that was, that was
3: that, that,
6: anyway, that's, that's, that's Eddie Birch's problem. And we'll, okay. I mean, he's on trial now. We'll see if the feds catch him or not. He's presumed innocent until guilty. Uh, but uh, but uh, the, the question is is uh, like generations of Chicago politicians be before him. Uh he uh, he let it be known that gee, if you want my help oh, oh golly, gee, I'd to think nice of you. You really gotta do something about this or hire my law from whatever the question is whether he moved from the Lincoln or not to uh, to being explicit, uh and, and making and and not giving the person being intelligence to figure it out, but de- demanding it. Um uh uh, that's you know that's kind of that's the kind of thing that's, that's involved in, in running the city government. You got fifty old women; they all want something. Uh, you can uh, you can get them on your side on your issues if you give them something much much of the time. But you got to figure it out what it is and put it in and make sure you have a a working majority. The mayor was pretty good at that on his first budget, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which passed which passed without uh, any difficulties. <coughs> um, uh, but on some other stuff, it's has more difficult.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, going back to the migrant issue, he he did have an announcement yesterday that made a lot of sense. They're going to, they're talking about impounding the buses that don't follow the rules that are set about when and where to drop off migrants. Um, that's a really creative tactic and could be successful, even that was dropped in a left-handed way. It wasn't promoted. It should have been part of an announcement about we're going to be aggressive about how this is done. We support the new newcomers to our city, and yet we do not support the tactics that are being done to embarrass us and to treat people like Uh, pawns in a political game. You know, he could have, again, some leadership statement, but here's one thing we can do and we're going to do it, you know, um, about the buses. I hope that that turns out to be successful and that he can do that and that he's got more of those ideas. But I also hope he maximizes the strategy with some leadership language so we all are clear on what he's doing and where he stands. You know, doesn't that feel like it was just dropped casually?
6: Um, they, they had indicated they were going to do that. Uh, they could have had a little, a little bit better. Um, yeah. uh, that's easy though. Uh, I think kind of one of the key tests that's coming up is, uh, is both the mayor and the governor have, uh, has indicated that, well, they're going to, they're not going to start to put some limits on, uh, on, uh, local generosity in the city's case. They're only going to let you stay in one of these shelters for 60 days, uh, uh, in the state's case, uh, but, uh, anybody who came after a certain date is not going to get rent assistance. Um, and, well, geology what, what happens when the sixty days are up? Yes. You know, uh, you know, we're talking mid-January. Are they really going to really going to go to the, uh, to, the uh, to the to the field house or, or the police station or whatever they are and say, "Get the hell out! Go out with the cult. Your sixty days are up." I'll believe it when I see it, not a second before.
1: And and anyway, your disbelief is uh, understandable, but I'm also kind of angry because the then what? Again, there's a lack of leadership. You're just going to turn people out in the street? That's not a sanctuary city. You want them to set up more tents uh, uh, over on the highway? You know, it's kind of crowded over there. I don't think there's room. And it's not very safe over there right now.
6: Um, so, well, I, one of the, one of the, one, one of the, wait, we should talk about one of the good things that's going on. And this is kind of the ultimate solution. Um, I talked to the people at, at, at Catholic Charities. Uh, who are kind of the lead delegate agency for for getting people uh, uh, into jobs and into permanent housing. Yeah. And when I checked with them a couple of weeks ago, they told me they're, they're now up to about 500 families a month that they are able to, since the federal rules have been eased a little bit, to get into real housing apartments uh, uh, and uh, and eligible to go to work to have income to pay for those apartments. That's the way out of this. Yes. Work uh, permits. We need to get more more like that, more like that.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um we do have a caller who's got another idea that is not a new idea, but one that's been floated around and we'll see what you think about uh, this idea from Bob who's calling us from San Jose, California, which also has its share of busloads of migrants. Uh, welcome Bob. What's what's your idea?
7: Well, I was going to say, in the past few minutes, you've been reading my mind. Impounding the buses is just one piece of it. I would say your mayor, I believe his name is Brandon, should be talking to other mayors across the country and even talking to governors across the country because isn't this interstate trafficking of people? Isn't that a federal crime? It would seem to me that that it is. When those people come from Texas and they're being dropped off in Chicago without even warm clothing and you get 10 buses at a time, that's a major thing. And uh, I would say that the the drivers need to be arrested as being accomplices, keep the buses as proof that they were doing it, and and then then follow the money because somebody's financing this. And I I would say it needs to be a, a coordinated effort, not just Chicago. In Chicago has, I used to live in Chicago. Chicago is a city where I guess referred to as having big shoulders and, and being a, a place where people care about each other. Well, yeah, but let's spread it out across the country and let's deal with this attempt to politically embarrass the blue cities. That's what I think it's really about. And I think going up to the people, I, in my mind, are seriously breaking the law by kidnapping those poor people from for
6: the well. Here's, the, the here's here's my here's my reaction to, to to what you're saying, Bob. I think you're part right, uh, uh, but uh, but wrong on some stuff. I, uh, it, to my understanding, none of these people are being kidnapped. None of them are being coerced. What happens is that they're stuck in a miserable shelter down in the border area of Texas, and somebody comes up to say, we're offering free bus rides to another city. You want to go to New York? You want to go to Chicago for free? Uh, don't you have a cousin up there? And they get out on their own. That that, that means it's not kidnapping. Uh, maybe it's some kind of inducement, but, uh, but uh, making a crime out of that, they can prosecute uh, uh, somebody uh, uh, I think would be difficult. What I do think you're right is that uh, what's happening here and across the country is, is, is emblematic of the absolute failure of the federal government to seriously deal with this problem. Yes. The immigration system in this country is broke. Everybody knows it's broke. Uh, the Democrats are right on some stuff they're wrong. With some the same with the Republicans. But uh, since nobody wants to give, nobody happens, and the situation continues to fester. You want to solve this? Ultimately, that's where the solution is.
1: Aren't there some cases, and I'm not doing reporting on this, but I thought I've read some cases where people are not told the truth. They get them to sign uh, a, a document saying, I'm going willingly, so they could prevent this kind of charge that Bob is talking about. But they're told their jobs. Come to Chicago and you'll get a job. Well, there aren't jobs here. They don't have work permits. They can't go to work, you know. So if you could document the lies that were told to get them to sign, wouldn't,
6: maybe, there might be something. If that's, if, if that's the case, I would agree Then maybe you have mm-hmm. something.
1: Else. And I don't know, you know, I presume the ACLU and others have looked into that, maybe. But Um, That's what I, when I first saw those reports, maybe they're not doing that anymore because they could see the vulnerability of doing so, but um, they speak to them in Spanish and they tell them things that uh, may or may not be true. And if it's not true, they're liable. So um, I think there's a thread there, Bob, but it's a lot of work and I would guess that if there's substance there, there's somebody working on it. I'd certainly be disappointed if if it was being ignored. I would I,
7: say, I would say, given, given what I know of of having lived in Chicago and what, I, what we have out here, there are a lot of a lot of people with warm hearts and, and and willing to help these poor people who are immigrants. But at the same time, I really believe that they're being mis, misled, if nothing else. You know it is what they're being told it's probably not in print anywhere. they're just being told that there's a job waiting and and then well, somebody later says, "Well, I never said that But, but you know they're mm-hmm. try to get out of it
1: yeah, but, but if you but, uh,
7: i would if you when infiltrate it busload of people who all have pretty much the same story of how they were told that there was a job waiting and there was some other things waiting that uh, Maybe you can you can put the pieces together because I do smell something criminal going on here, and I think I think this is a yeah. place where a mayor can get together with other mayors, and I would say with governors too, to to uh, put some pressure on the folks in Washington to deal with this problem. It's not just Chicago's problem; it shouldn't be. That's right. Uh, I think I think you, those are good thank points. Thank you for 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 thank you for bringing this up. It's it's a, I think it's a. Big problem when you have 500 people arrive and no place for them to go.
1: Yeah, it's cruelty. Um, It's extreme cruelty. I I want to respond to one other thing you said about follow the money because, Greg, isn't some of this money coming from the taxpayers of Florida? I know I've seen the number, and it's not uh, on the tip of my tongue right now. I can't say. But millions of dollars in Florida tax dollars are spent busing people from Texas. I've seen DeSantis say that um, otherwise they'll just come here because Florida is so attractive. I mean, if you're in... You're a new migrant. You'd be crazy to go to Florida right now under that leadership. But that's what he says, and that's the excuse he used to spend tax dollars. And that puzzles me. Why would you let your tax dollars be used for that uh, in a state that has so many needs?
6: Yeah, because you're running for president of the United States in a uh, in a party that seems to hate all immigrants and has forgotten where everybody came from, including Donald Trump's wife. Um, uh, yeah, she'd be he, deported under his
1: new dictatorship day one plan, wouldn't she?
6: Well, so I had have to have I have, to have lovely winters in Sweden, even nicer than
1: ours. <laughs> no, no. Yes, but no, um, I don't mean why would you, why would DeSantis do it? I get why he would do it. Why would you as a Florida taxpayer not be outraged in fighting against that use of your tax dollars when they have so many problems in that state?
6: Uh, You know, it's a good question. Um, I don't claim to be an expert on on politics in in Florida. I know there's been some signs that uh, Ron DeSantis' honeymoon has uh, worn off down there, Uh, but uh, we'll see if it it causes real problems. Um, My guess would be he's doing other stuff that they like, and this isn't broken through as an issue.
1: Yeah, I suppose you're right. Um, As a side note, I was just entertained by the video clip of his wife sitting next to him, a calling him the governor cuz they're not on a first name basis i guess um and secondly uh saying that you didn't have to be an iowa resident this is a tangent i can't help myself saying you didn't have to be an iowa resident in order to vote in the caucus and all the moms and yeah she sure. Grandmoms who yeah. support us here and in the Carolinas ought to go to Iowa participate. She's retracted it since, but the clip is floating around. Yeah,
6: yeah. She says she says she didn't say that. She says that she said that she was only talking about people participating in the caucus, helping organize the caucus, but not voting in the caucus. That's She's, what she meant. She says
1: she said you don't have to be an Iowa resident to vote to well, participate. To participate. Well, okay, I see. Now well, there you go. Parsing words is a political skill that apparently Indeed. she sort of has, but not she's not the best at it, I would say. <laughs> I, anyway, that's a Florida's problem at the moment, um, but I don't think it's going to be a national burden to bear because I don't think he's going to emerge as the nominee on the Republican side. I feel pretty confident with that prediction
6: as well. What do you think about, about J.B. Prisker eventually on the Democratic side, Marge?
1: I, you know, I think he's an exciting candidate. And I, I'm going to say, because I've probably said it on this station before, I was not overly enthusiastic. I've had a long-term uh, personal policy that a, a wealthy person shouldn't buy a high office, that you don't know their base, you don't know what they stand for. I respected all the community work he had done, but We've just talked at length about the difference between being on the outside and the inside, and I felt that he should um, start somewhere other than governor. But I was wrong. I was majorly wrong because I think he's been an extraordinary governor um, and shown uh, expertise in governing and managing all the different factors that we just talked about with mayor johnson certainly apply to state governance as well um and uh his job's a little easier now with more uh democrats in the legislature but still he um has managed constituents balanced the needs of different constituents in our rather bifurcated state and done a great job and he's uh hewed closely to the progressive ideals that he ran on and I think he'd be a very interesting candidate for president although you won't be surprised, my bleeding heart still pines for uh, a woman, a person of color to run our country um, to be representative and I would hope that we could move our party in that direction after Biden's second term
6: Well, there's two to come to mind Harris
1: and uh, and, Gris and Whitmer, yeah, um, Whitmer is extraordinary from my home state and a state that, uh, as part of indivisible Chicago, we worked extensively to help flip and bring more Democrats, bring Democrats into all the key leader positions. And the fact that they were all women is just a little extra joy for me. Uh, not that all women leaders are good, because we could name. Many, including the one that has made my name more famous than it's ever been in my lifetime, who is not a woman leader that I'd get behind. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you're right. There's some good candidates out there. Uh, um, Val Demings is someone I've had an eye on for a long time. And uh, there are many others around this, the country who are emerging. Stacey Abrams, who I fear has been hillary and would have a hard time. Unfairly, So, um, but yeah, I, that's going to be a lot of fun after Biden's second term to see who can pick up the mantle from him. But first, we got to make sure he gets a second
6: if, term. If, 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 if there's a second term, um, I, I agree with you. I think he will probably be Trump if that turns out to be the choice. But I don't think that's absolutely certain on either side. Oh no, uh, we just spent it, an
1: hour discussing uh, ha- wringing our hands over yeah. how not certain it is. <laughs> but I am confident that.
6: Yeah, uh, I mean, it, I mean, if, if Trump gets if Trump gets convicted of something, uh, if if the federal trial in Washington on the. On the uh, uh, 9-11 stuff uh, goes uh, happens, uh, January 6th stuff, rather, happens. Um, that could be interesting. If Biden pulls a surprise after he locks up the nomination, if he wakes up one day and says, well, I'm really not up for it. Uh, I can't do it. Uh, I don't think those are likely, but they're not no. impossible.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's likely. And I think, um, all the talk about, you know, who else besides Biden is counterproductive. Biden is, in my mind, in the mind of most progressives, done a great job in, uh, you know, like Pritzker, uh, of delivering on his promise and, uh, a second term would be good for this country. I uh, I want to go back to the state uh, to the migrant issue because we have a caller who wants to weigh in on the state governor's response, on Pritzker's response, and I wonder if Marty has a different view than you and I have sort of expoused here. Marty, what are you thinking?
8: Yeah, there sure. Well, I mean, I was thinking at, at some at, at some point there could be a statewide. Um, um, a, a, like, like a statewide initiative that says if you're bringing migrants anywhere into this state, if you're crossing the state border with migrants on your bus and they do not have X amount of certain supplies, such as like a, a mattress to sleep on, a cell phone with the translator app installed so that they can communicate to people mm-hmm. in English and, and that they have, um, you know, that they have a, a weather appropriate clothing, And are set up, you know, for, you could dictate what, and then, and then our state police could be stopping these buses anywhere in Illinois and finding these people if they do not have the supplies that they would need in order to, you know, um, be able to survive, um, in, in a shelter in Chicago. like So I, I think that that's one of the things that we could be doing. And I have another thought as well, that we should be doing a better job of documenting the stories of these migrants that are coming mm-hmm. in, that are living at police shelters. And I mean, I've talked to quite a few of them. I had an initiative where I was out air beds to people because um, through chance I was able to work with some of these, um, um, some uh, a, a group of people at the District 9 police station or at my friend's charity. We asked a group of, these people are come on over and help us with the exterior work and just some other things and um I led a company about thirty people and we all walked over and um did a fantastic job and we wow. all um, grabbed some of the shoes that we had. But one of the things I was asking them, well, oh, what else do you guys really? Know? And the like cold chummings, cool children. Cool, so everyone needed airbags and mattresses, something to sleep <sighs> on 'cause they were you know, so I kind of made an initiative collecting airbags and distributing them and then I got to know quite a few, um, you know, quite a few of the families that were, that were staying there and their stories are all very interesting. You learn about Venezuela you learn Mm -hmm. about some people coming from Colombia, but mostly their economy is completely collapsed and they're using American dollars as currency anyways. And it's like a lot of our trade policies that we've enacted, you know, kind of set the stage for, you know, this migration that we're dealing, you know, that we're experiencing right now. But we go, we spend all of this money trying to fight, you know, a a migration instead of like investing where we could to, you know, help, you know, you know, help have a more equitable, um, you know, Central America, South America, but yeah, you know, yeah. Trouble. Well, good
1: for you. Thank you for doing all that. And it's what I said earlier about the the hundreds, if not thousands, of Chicagoans who have shown the heart that we have in this city and really supported migrants. Those are some interesting ideas, Greg. Could the state pass a law like that? Would it work?
6: Um, maybe. Uh, it would probably depend on some of the details or whatever. But as a general rule uh, uh, questions of interstate transportation and commerce are, are run by the federal government, not local governments for good reason um, uh, i i, I understand the intent of what your caller suggested, but in some ways, you could argue, it's not too different from what's going on in Texas, where a bunch of local jurisdictions have made it illegal, passed bills making it illegal, to drive through their town on the way to deliver a woman for an abortion in another state, which it's an effort to get around Texas law. Uh, do I, do I agree <laughs> with that? No, that's outrageous. But my point is... Is, is it is, a precedent, is, though? It, it, my by my point though is that it, well if it's, it's upheld it hasn't been upheld yet. Mm-hmm. If you allow every local jurisdiction to impose rules on who can go where, uh, uh, and when, um, that is that has a lot of potential. Uh, complications uh, not too far down the road among them that uh, it might cut off people who still want to come here despite all the problems we're having in Chicago. I mean, I have to think that some word of the difficulties here has gotten to the migrant population down there, people coming in. Uh, But they still still made a value judgment that it's better to go through it and go up to Chicago and and roll the dice than it is to stay down in Texas. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I want to tell them you can't have that chance.
1: Wow. Well, that's a that's a really um, thoughtful response. Uh, not surprising. You've been thoughtful all along, and the hour has whizzed by with your thoughts and a few of mine and a few of our callers. And here we are at the top of the hour. I'm talking with Greg Hines, the columnist for the Crane Chicago business, uh, who also had the scoop a while ago. I've been reminded by Paul here uh, about the Sox, uh, interested in Nashville. I look forward to more writing about that, even though that's not our topic for today, but just to show you uh, how well-sourced get Greg Hines really is in this city. So thanks for joining us, Greg. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes to talk about the parks and the bears. That's as far as I'm going going to go into sports conversation, but uh, bears and whether they're going to stay on the lakefront or not is a topic we all want to hear about from Friends of the Parks. That's what's going to happen here on WCPT.
0: You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT eight twenty.
1: Marge Halperin here. I'm tired of making excuses for Ed, who deserves a day off and has one, thanks to me. <laughs> thanks to the bosses who let him off and called me to fill in, if you must know. But that's how it works behind the scenes. Uh, I'm Marge Helper, and I'm happy to be here on a Saturday afternoon with you, talking about all the things that are newsworthy. And, and I can't believe we hung up with Greg Hines without mentioning one of the big things that happened in city politics this week, and that is the new guidelines for public comment at the city council. We almost got there and we talked about the mayor's former floor leader, but have you seen how they're now limiting uh, public comment in a couple of ways? First of all, only one minute, which led to the shameful video of hauling George Blakemore off of the floor While he's yelling about it, he's demanding to be able to speak because he's used to speaking for three minutes. If you don't know George Blakemore, look him up. He's been a a common speaker at City Council, County Board, and other public bodies for years. Uh, He's a smart guy. He comes across as sometimes a little unsteady. But he knows what he's talking about, and he had something to say, and they cut him off after one minute. I mean, I, I've done a little bit of commercial radio uh, in the, in the old, uh, old days when, say, FM radio used to have news. And unlike my favorite alma mater, XRT, which would give us lots of minutes, you know, a lot of – you'd hear the news on WLS – when it was a rock station, you know, you have a one minute story and you couldn't figure out what was going on. One minute is not enough time to say much of anything, but the point is clear. They don't want to hear what we have to say. Makes a mockery of public comment. Three minutes wasn't great, but you can put a lot into three minutes. We hear that on the radio all the time and you can be cogent and clear and get your point across. But one minute is an insult and there's no um, public interaction when you have one minute. But then they also now are Making people sign up in advance in order to be in the gallery it 's not enough that you can 't be on the main floor gallery anymore as a member of the public. You have to be an invited guest Now you have to be in the glass in section in top up top where they can 't hear you and you can 't be heard in the in the debate that 's happening on the floor. But now you have to sign up two weeks or uh, up to forty eight hours ahead of time, give the name of who 's going to be there. And no group can be more than 15 people. So you can't organize a presence at city council that way anymore. And you have to have a valid ID. So if you're an undocumented resident of Chicago, you're not going to have the ID to be able to speak, which when we're dealing with these migrant issues that we just talked about for the better part of the last hour, you're totally shut out from having a voice. Um, it's an outrage. And to have this happen under a progressive mayor is really, let's say, disappointing, to put it mildly. And I would have loved to hear what Greg had to say about that, but we'll have to do that next time. Um, but I want to be sure that you've all heard about that development and look up the details for yourself. So that closes officially our hour of uh, state politics, but not entirely because we're going to move to another aspect of uh, news and politics here, that dealing with our parks and our lakefront. We're going to talk to one of the leaders who has for some time been involved in Friends of the Park's. Uh, Fred Bates is a member of the board, and he's been there for several years. You'll have to tell us how many, Fred, when, when I allow you to speak uh, in just a second after I'm done lavishing praise on you for all that you and Friends of the Parks have done. I know a little bit about this from personal experience, having been the marketing director at the Park District some years ago and uh, worked closely with Friends of the Parks. We sometimes liked what we did and sometimes didn't but was always straightforward and honest and uh, well-researched in positions. And that's why we all have so much respect for all that your outgoing executive director, Juanita Irizarry, has done for this city. And I want to talk a little bit about her legacy and the legacy of the organization before we ask you about the latest news from Friends of the Parks regarding this uh, possibility that the Bears could build a second stadium on the lakefront. So we're going to get to all of that uh, in a minute or two. But first, I want to formally welcome Fred Bates to our show. And Fred, how long have you been on the board of Friends of the Parks?
5: Uh, Getting on uh, 20 years, two decades. Wow, (laughs) I knew it was a while. Long time.
1: Well, then you've, uh, you've seen it all by now. Parks-wise.
5: Um, well, I don't know that I've seen it all, but hearing your piece on Mr. Blakemore was kind of intriguing because he's around on the issues that are important to parks as well as all the other things that he talks about. Um,
1: yeah, he has extraordinary knowledge, and he doesn't always deliver it in a conventional manner, but when you listen to what he has to say, it's extremely insightful.
5: Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. He's, he's a, an amazing spokesperson and gadfly.
1: Right, both. And to see him hauled off, I mean literally forcibly hauled off the floor just turns my stomach. Uh, it, it, there's no way to treat someone who deserves, everyone deserves respect when they speak to the council. That was really horrible. Um Anyway, we'll see how that plays out in the coming week, but I'm not surprised he's been to commenting at the Park District, too, because he keeps tabs on everything, and uh, we thank him for that and wish him well. Um, so, uh, 20 years, uh, that goes back uh, pretty much to the time that I was at the Park District. Maybe not quite. Uh, I think I left, mm, got to think about it, but, um, but you've... Seen a lot of administrations, a couple of different mayors, and
5: s- Oh, goodness, lots of Kellys. <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> lots of Kellys. Well, you don't go back to Ed Kelly, do you? No,
5: no, but not uh years. But his legacy, I, I do in my lifetime, but uh, yes, not not too. in my tenure with Friends of the Parks.
1: But. Right. I was a forty seventh ward resident uh, soon after he left, I guess, but we still had Kelly cans in the neighborhood uh, for sure. Um, but but. I think that's a good uh, entree into talking about one of the issues that Friends of the Park has really made front and center in recent years under Juanita's leadership, uh, if not before, um, and that is equity in park resources. Because Kelly, um, of course, was the subject of a major lawsuit about the disparities in parks, the Northside parks given far more and blatantly more amenities than those in the South Side, and there was a federal order uh, to, you know, uh, bring equity to the parks. How successful has that effort really been?
5: Um, Well, it's a kind of a complicated question, but the answer is I'd say it was meaningfully successful over time. But it's, like all important issues, something that needs to be revisited constantly because there's some human tendency to let things fall back to where they once were. And and we're kind of at that place right now. But as you know, Friends of the Parks came into existence to uh, be a part of uh, handling the uh, legal aspects of that uh, uh, initial challenge to the park district on equity that uh, came so many years ago and uh, over time things have sort of gotten better and more equal but the friends of the parks did a very major study in 2018 which uh, showed that there continue to be meaningful differences in application of resources in programming in the field houses of the parks and especially in maintenance and upkeep it just uh, it seems that we have to revisit the issue and push hard to against the part not against but with the park district to make sure that they keep looking at at how equitable they need to be and how equitable they actually are
1: I think there's probably that's probably the story in a lot of areas of city services. You know, you could look at housing and a lot of other areas where, from time to time, there's a push for equity, but there isn't that sustained focus on it. How, how is it manifest in terms of the parks, programming, maintenance? You mentioned is lighting. well,
5: programming is especially, uh, let's say, uh, disproportionately. Uh, funded and, in, and present in neighborhoods that have more resources to start with uh, than in neighborhoods with less resources. And so and the report we did in 2018 outlines that in some detail. The Park District pushed back on it, but I think fundamentally in their heart of hearts, and I can't speak for them, they understood how much that issue was important and have... Uh, been trying to, I think, get get back on track.
1: I know when I was there, which was also a couple decades ago, um, under Forrest Claypool, a superintendent, yes. we, we made a real effort to improve the physical... Uh, what, the physical elements of the park make them cleaner, um, make them brighter. There was a deal with the White Sox to put new improved ball fields and with an all with an emphasis on South Side parks because we did uh, I did as a marketing director, the first ever public survey and research uh, professional research into people's views of the parks. And uh, too many said they didn't feel safe there. And I wonder yes. what the element is of the perception of safety in these South side parks, especially now, where communities uh, generally are feeling less safe.
5: Um, I think sadly that that still is a major perception and to some degree a, a reality in many contexts, uh, especially on south and west side parks and and uh, some uh, north side parks as well. And it's an issue we, we would like to put more energy and resources into than we've been able to. And we've certainly had ongoing con- discussions with the Park District uh, on these issues over the last uh, decade or two. Uh, but especially in the last three or four years, uh, and COVID in, sort of created some new Places where these became the safety became a meaningfully not worse exactly, but a very important issue to deal with.
1: And do you think some further improvements have been made since those COVID years?
5: Um, I I do think so. Um, our observations have been that there has been some improvement, but it's just. Uh, One of the issues the city itself needs to deal with effectively, the park district uh, has resources in part to deal with security, but fundamentally it's the Chicago Police Department and the degree to which the park district and the police department can coordinate the concerns about safety, and that still needs uh, meaningful improvement.
1: I think COVID taught many of us to have even greater appreciation for the green spaces in our community, especially once we learned it was safe to be outside with others. <laughs> um, that was a big breakthrough. Um, I live downtown. I spent more time in just sitting under trees in the parks in those years than... Uh, than I think I ever had. Of course, there are fewer days to sit downtown under the trees in Grant Park than there used to be, thanks to you know, NASCAR and Sonios and all those things. What What is Friends of the Park's position on these special private events that close off the parks to the public, both downtown uh, um, and in the neighborhoods?
5: We We have been very, very troubled by it and have spoken up on that consistently with the park district over the years. We were really deeply troubled by NASCAR and and opposed to having it have the place that it did. Uh, It's troubling that there was almost no public process or involvement in NASCAR coming to town, and it uh, seems to be uh continuing uh, with very little public input and and the city not creating a space for public input it's it's a very deeply troubling issue
1: right consistent with some of the conversation we had last hour about how this progressive mayor is still not quite hitting all the all the marks from a progressive standpoint but But in terms of NASCAR, I I spoke just a few days ago with Alderman Conway, uh, the downtown alderman, my alderman, who I ran into at any event downtown. Um, And he said he had one request of the administration regarding NASCAR. Well, he had several. But he said, if you can only do one thing, change the date. Give us back the Fourth of July weekend. And and, uh, they didn't do what he asked or what many of us asked. Uh, who loved the 4th of July activities. It used to be downtown, whether it's Taste of Chicago or the fireworks or all those other things that we used to bring people downtown for an existing holiday and made it also hard to measure the benefit of NASCAR, right? They've refused to do a head-to-head comparison.
5: Yes, and and there seems to be so much money behind this uh, and so much... uh, influence that seems to be behind the scenes in in uh, mm-hmm. keeping this uh, on the playing field uh, we we are very troubled uh it's an issue if we could find the resources we'd like to see uh, more energy put put into dealing with this although the community at large and the older people certainly have uh, a very meaningful focus on it, but they haven't seemed to have been able to get a uh, sort of coherent uh, aldermanic presence on, on this issue.
1: No, that's right. One thing we've also talked to Alderman Conway and Dowell, even Riley uh, and Lee about, because I live in the South Loop, is having a South Loop caucus in the city council that could give them all more influence if they would work together as a body. And this is one example. If they all had the same point of view about NASCAR, which I'm not entirely sure they do, Um, but (laughs) having stated your issue about having resources, just dropped as an aside, if you had the resources, wouldn't it be... Impactful if you could commission that kind of head-to-head study because the mayor promised a resource study and a, an a, a economic impact study, and then he assigned it to choose Chicago, which does a lot of great things for the city but is not the impartial body uh, that needed to do it. I had written an op-ed with Joe Ferguson, uh, the former uh, uh, inspector general for Chicago, that we had in Cranes, uh, suggesting that it was the inspector general's job to do that study. They had done one in the past when NATO was here, um, and they had the expertise to do it. And that's, Mayor didn't take our advice and had to Chicago do it and got the outcome he wanted. But what if Friends of the Parks could partner with the, one of the research universities here and do that study? It can be done. Mayor just didn't want to do it because I think he didn't like what it would say. But Fourth of July was already a high revenue weekend. With Taste of Chicago, which, by the way, seems to be dying now that they moved it to September, but choose any other weekend that is uh, of low, you know, low return for the city. Yeah. Let's do it the first weekend in August. I don't think there's anything big there. I don't know when Sonios is, but I don't think that's when it is. You know, just pick another weekend when we could use the revenue boost. And doing it for the money, for my for my part. As someone who supports the progressive agenda of this mayor, if that's what it takes to get more revenue, let's do it. But let's do it in a way that maximizes revenue um, instead of this kind of minimal return for a maximum uh, payout by the residents of the city. Is that something Friends of the Parks could do?
5: Well, I certainly would like to keep that issue on the table for us um it, it is meaningfully a larger community issue than just a parks issue and uh and for that, I think we uh if we can see a coalition coming together, I think we'd sort of be uh quite willing to be involved with that
1: hm the coalition needing some others with resources or just the others right. with the big yeah. voice because there's certainly a lot <laughs> oh. of community groups that would work with you.
5: Yes, I think so. Um, it's it's certainly an important issue and uh, one that needs ongoing a- attention.
1: Yeah, I hope it's not over. Um, they have six months to renegotiate. There's still time, right?
5: Uh, yes.
1: Uh, so we'll see. Um, we we do have a couple callers who want to talk to us about NASCAR. That's always a hot button. Let's start with Steve from the Gold Coast. What are you thinking about uh, NASCAR in the park, Steve?
7: Uh, Yes, well, I want to uh, raise a couple of points. And and yes, I I do think that there was a time when that weekend was much more substantial in terms of that area. But the reality is that we don't have that July 3rd massive fireworks display. We haven't had it in years. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, after three decades here in Chicago, I know that that weekend And those days surrounding the 4th of July are are, are a time when Chicago is particularly devoid of people. It's the best time to have it. People leave the city. The 4th of July is celebrated in the suburbs and other places, not so much downtown. And especially in that area where we are especially in need of activity and something to draw on people. And that NASCAR event was the sixth most viewed event in five years. Oh,
1: we just lost Steve I'm not sure what happened I think
5: well I think his but what point you think about it's, yeah? um, I, I, I'm not persuaded and I happen to have been here for yeah. the 4th of July and was troubled by it um, but the sort of popularity of NASCAR uh, is a very real thing and uh, where Chicago can fit into that perspective is unclear but I don't think this is the right way to do it but that's my personal view, and uh, I think what we really need is a lot more robust dialogue uh, and get all the viewpoints out and come up with something that, that, from my viewpoint, would be, and that's not speaking totally for Friends of the Parks here, but, uh, but to get a place where the right balance is struck on this issue. And I like your thought that let's get it in a place where it will generate uh, something where there isn 't anything, and that 's not where it is at the moment,
1: right, right, and I know we and Steve was right, we lost the fireworks, and um, again, in my role yeah. as marketing director of the park district, I oversaw the Um, symphony on the 3rd of July so I know what that looked like and that is not the way it looked downtown after the fireworks moved to Navy Pier. Nonetheless still a very busy weekend downtown and people do come into the city um, and uh, I know it's a big tourist weekend and all those numbers should be documented by someone I still think it would be great if it
5: was you I I, (laughs) 100% agree with you (laughs)
1: Well, maybe we'll talk again about that uh, off-air sometime. <laughs> I'm uh, ready and willing to have that conversation anytime. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think um, NASCAR was popular. It, that alone doesn't make it worth rolling over for the kind of deal. The city, to moderate the deal a little bit, got a little more money from it. But in my mind, still not enough. It's still $2 a ticket, and it doesn't change, even when some of those tickets were upwards of $2,000. Seemed like there should have been a sliding scale return on the ticket. I, that That's common sense negotiating to me. I, I don't. I just don't understand why they didn't up the revenue uh, well, per ticket it, it or other. it came
5: things. quickly and and fundamentally with no public input. Right, and and that needs meaningful. Uh, Remediation it needs to be very open and and discussed with real public input input and real thought.
1: Yes, I totally agree with that point, and uh, it was less surprising when Lori Lightfoot rammed it through without talking to anybody. <laughs> but we did not expect that from Mayor Johnson, and yeah. uh, the aldermen and the residents in that community uh, have been extremely disappointed, as have the advocates.
3: You're well, for.
5: I, I think most of the older people, and I, I, I haven't followed everyone, but particularly those in the immediate downtown area have found their residents are, are troubled by it. And, and fundamentally, I don't want to use the word opposed exactly, but mm-hmm. if it's going to have happen to have it done in a way which is less destructive to the neighborhood and to the community.
1: Yeah. And I would speak here as one of the organizers of a relatively new group in the South Loop called One Community Near South. And that is how we feel uh, as a group. Uh, Definitely uh, not 100 percent opposed. A lot of people enjoyed it, but did not like the disruption, didn't think it was worth the disruption, didn't think that level of disruption was a good value for the city uh, or necessary for the amount of money the city got. An ongoing conversation that I hope, uh, I hope will be an ongoing conversation that includes the mayor and that we aren't just talking among ourselves going forward, but that remains to be seen. Yeah. I'm talking to Fred Bates, who has uh, been on the board of Friends of the Parks for over two decades, as you have just told us, an impressive commitment to uh, public service and to our green spaces in the city. And there's a lot more to talk about. We have a couple callers waiting. If you'll hang on while we do a quick break, we'll come back right. and take your points of view. And Fred, you're in it for the hour, and I appreciate your giving us the time. And, Thanks, Bart. Uh, those who want to call, seven seven three seven six three. 9278 or 763-WCPT which is the progressive talk station that you're listening to today.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820.
1: It's Marge Halperin here for Ed. This afternoon and we're talking about Chicago's parks and our guest is Fred Bates, longtime member of the board of Friends of the Parks that has been standing up for our green spaces and for those of us who enjoy them for decades, Fred himself for a couple of decades, but the organization for a little bit longer than that, and uh, we're uh, happy to have a lot of interest in protecting our parks. We've been talking about NASCAR, and I don't want to take up too much more time about that, because there are some other park-related aspects, but Paul has been waiting on the line to talk to us, so uh, let's try a quick comment from Paul about NASCAR, then we'll close that topic. What do you have to say, Paul?
4: I... Of course, I live in Seattle, but I can't imagine who would want a noisy, stinky, obnoxious, annoying event in the city on Fourth of July weekend. Uh, by the way, I grew up in Detroit, and we had the Grand Prix, mm-hmm. and it's just—it is annoying. It's awful. It's—and—and and here's the problem, though, is it's—it's it's of such limited appeal. Auto racing. I, I wouldn't want to go, I and mean, then I don't want to have my city taken up. And, okay, I disagree with Steve, uh, Gold Coast Steve, uh, who I normally agree on almost everything on, but this brings sparkling diversity to the conversation. Um, you know, why can't the 4th of July weekend be more family-oriented and not have to be such a big hype uh, with uh, everything? We have enough uh, fireworks and so on. I don't think, uh, although those things are starting to uh, subside in terms of how much of that but I do like your idea, Marge, of uh moving such events to the first weekend in in August because that's when we have in Seattle our noisy, stinky, obnoxious weekend called Seafair, <laughs> which is the hydroplane races on Lake Washington and the, the, the Navy fighter, the Blue Angels show. And they of course they they rattle everybody's windows for a couple of days while they're practicing beforehand. Uh, but you know, I, I'm I i would not be upset if they didn't, although, you know, because the dog days are really so slow a fighter jet coming by once in a while lends a bit of excitement but i think that the idea the whole idea of having noisy motors all the time uh we have to get away from that model of drawing people into the city and with expensive tickets it should be family oriented where families can come and spend some money and you make your margin on volume not so much on expensive tickets if families come down and they can buy ice cream and and uh, treats and, and foods that are are good, and they can decide what they want for their kids, but it should be inclusive, not like auto racing, which really doesn't have as wide of appeal as what many people might like to think.
1: Well, now you're describing Taste of Chicago, which got booted from that weekend. We, uh, but but the, I will say this about NASCAR. Um, I had as much interest in it as you've just expressed, although cousins who followed a particular racer got to meet him somewhere and were all excited and um, came uh, to be here for the race. They didn't have tickets. They couldn't afford them, and neither could we. But um, we did watch it on TV, and we went down, although it was raining all day, we went down to peek through the uh, fence in a couple of places that the neighbors had found, and it was kind of exciting. I, I enjoyed watching it. I didn't like the timing. I don't like the expense. I agree with you on all those points, except I do think it has some greater appeal than you gave it credit for. And I'll also give the NASCAR folks credit for having done a lot of outreach in the community, particularly in the black community and with young people. They gave out a lot of free tickets and uh, did a lot of presentations uh, about racing and the many kinds of jobs that are in the racing industry, and uh, I thought that that was an impressive part of their program. Again, I didn't like the timing, I do not like the price of the tickets, but I'm not quite as dismissive as you are. Neither am I as big a fan of the Blue Angels as you are because they come to our city, too, and that's a whole other conversation uh, about yeah, I, militarizing I, I, entertainment. But
4: Absolutely. Here's a question. Um, let's say that uh, NASCAR uh, evolved into the 21st century with all electric vehicles that didn't make any noise. Whoa. (laughs) would it be as popular? I mean, I asked my brother, my brother drives a, a, a Harley Davidson, and I asked him, you know, wouldn't electric motorcycles actually be better? And he said, no one ever buy one.
1: Yeah,
4: and because the appeal is, you know, it's like they love the noise. Hey, have some testosterone. Yeah, and I uh, thought, well, why couldn't you just? Why can't you just inject some testosterone while you're driving your electric, <laughs> and then you. Right?
1: Well that would let out women who like to drive fast cars and there are some. <laughs> but but also I will say about the noise, so we watched it on television and I, I you know, I live in the South Loop, so we'd open our doors so we could hear, you know, the excitement. And it drowned out the TV. It was louder than you can possibly imagine. Um well, I we know. were a couple blocks away. Um, but thanks for that input. Fred, did it give you any new ideas about how to negotiate NASCAR? <laughs> well, <laughs>
5: Well, uh, I'm intrigued to hear the various uh, thoughts about it. Uh, I'm personally troubled by the noise. We did have meaningful complications this year with a very intense rain that uh, Mm -hmm. uh, came close to scuttling the whole thing. And uh, they how they recovered and (laughs) managed is still intriguing to me. But I I think it's an issue. I I just stay with the thought. It it didn't have the appropriate public input. I think there's a question about who it appeals to and uh, where that audience is and where things like that ought to take place. I I just don't think we've addressed that issue sufficiently. And uh, so... um, uh, from my viewpoint, I'd like to see much more meaningful discussion.
1: Yep. I can't agree with you more. And and I'll say one more thing about the cost I- evaluation, that um, as far as I could see, the study that the Chicago Commission did not include the cost of all the road repairs that were done in advance of NASCAR. Mayor Lightfoot said they were scheduled anyway, but I don't think that that was documented to be true. Um uh, I don't know what list it was on or some of the the closing of Lakeshore Drive for all those repairs. And they were, I mean, welcome as a Lakeshore Drive driver. I appreciate that it's better uh, down in the loop. But um, I, I don't know that that was all scheduled, and I don't know how much of that and the police overtime was included, it was not clear that all the costs were included in the equation. So there is a lot more analysis and a lot more public discussion. I agree with you, and I hope this mayor gives us a chance to have that more meaningful dialogue with the city and the people who care about our parks. Um, We have another caller. I'm a little unsure what you have to say, Jim, but you apparently are a fan of the parks, so tell us about it.
3: Well, I, I, not really, but I just got I to gotta, I gotta tell somebody this experience today, just two mundane things. I went to the library and check out a couple of books, and the librarian said to me, January 6th is your due date. So I just told her, he said, nobody's going to forget that. But she stepped back twice and looked at me like, are you trying to incite a riot? You know. So <laughs> anyway, anyway, I go down the street, I pass the Salvation Army kettle, and I... Throw a couple of bucks and I said, you know, it's going to be very difficult. I said, you oh, know, with the uh, homeless and the uh, immigrant uh, situation, this must be very strained." And she says, well, Trump will fix it. This, this is a 30-year-old woman behind the, behind the bell. I said, are you sure? And then I got this January 6th in my mind on a Monday, Saturday. And I said, what about January 6th? I said, Did that have any fixed? Oh, that's all okay. The Democrats think that. They uh, they put Trump's head into another uh, his atmosphere and so on. Now this is a typical Saturday, but it, it kind of reminds me of a James Joyce novel where you're stuck in the same day. Mm-hmm. And how long is this? And how long is this going to go on, where people can't differentiate between reality and uh, what they see on the internet?
1: Well, uh, it, it'll go on at least until November of 2024. Okay. And right, uh, then exactly. we will reevaluate, right? I, I want to put us back yeah. into the context of the park conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. But I appreciate you speaking yeah, up. Yeah. I think yeah. it's Thank important you. to yeah. speak out yeah. to others yeah. and tell your reality.
3: Take care. Take care. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thanks for calling in. Well, uh, 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 speaking of. Uh, Reality—it's hard to discern what is reality and what is just rumor when it comes to conversations about the bears and whether they're going to stay in Chicago or not. But there is—how about that for a transition? See, I, I have a little.
5: Uh, <laughs> well, uh, it's it's a welcome transition.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. We're ready, right?
5: So, so yes.
1: uh, there. There uh, have been reports that there were discussions with the city and the Bears uh, about a potential new stadium, acknowledging the Soldier Field is not a, a suitable host venue for the Bears for all the reasons that I think we all know, um, and that there is a possibility of building a new stadium that could deliver more value to the franchise on the parking lot. And isn't this the same parking lot that Lucas wanted to build his museum on?
5: So, in, indeed, and by the way, the Park District has had plans to turn it into a, I mean, it is in the park, um, yeah. but they've had a, plans for <laughs> two decades now to make it a more fully and clearly park uh, and functioning as park. In what um, way? It, it, um, it, by changing the whole landscaping to create a much more uh, sort of plant and tree-filled uh, arena. And their plants have been sitting there unimplemented for quite a long time. Uh, and the, the bears seem to be, uh, and just shifting back to that, uh, I, I guess looking for this site, but... Uh, and I think that that somehow they're flailing a bit at the moment. Uh, I don't know where they are in their negotiations with Arlington Heights and its various community interests. Uh, mm. It seems unclear from what's been in the press, but certainly this seems like a, a strange move at this moment in time, uh, and one which it feels as though they have not thought it through carefully. Uh, That it's just something they've thrown on the table uh, without meaningful analysis or thought. Uh, That's meaningfully my personal view, uh, but it's very, very hard to understand what on earth is going on with the bears at the moment. We we have every sense that they've absolutely abandoned the city, and, and what is this thing that they've just thrown out? that they're looking back at the city again. It it doesn't show any thoughtful organization on the part of the Bears, in, in my judgment.
3: Hmm. Do, you
1: th- do you think they're trying to, I don't know, make some positive inroads with the mayor before they leave town to show they've I, really thought it through, you know, and didn't abandon us uh, hastily? I,
5: I, 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 it doesn't feel like that. But it doesn't feel um,
1: real or practical to you either, does it?
5: It does not. And I would say, speaking from Friends of the Park's viewpoint, um, this is more vulnerable as a uh, building plan than the Lucas site and, and uh, plans were. Uh, I mean, this is just a, a totally private uh, enterprise coming onto the lake. Uh, we challenged the Bears' and the city's uh, continuation in Soldier's Field a few decades ago. And while we lost that suit, and I think fundamentally for political reasons in the Supreme Court of Illinois, mm. uh, nonetheless, I, it's one I think we should have won. And, we, and given the results we had in the uh, suit against Lucas— I think there's every reason to think that we would win that suit the second time around.
3: It's and a similar
5: case, they, right? It, I'm sorry?
1: It's a similar case.
5: It's, it's very like. similar to the Lucas case. In the Lucas case, the the court, and as far as it went, it didn't go to conclusion. Uh, but it, as far as it went, the judge was very clear that this feels like a private enterprise. And and among other things, for example, Lucas always retained the (laughs) ownership of the art. And if he ever decided to abandon the city, everything would have gone with him. It wasn't a museum that was a gift to the public and part of the public community of museums.
1: Oh, wow. I had forgotten that fact. Um, So, yeah, we could have had an empty shell of a museum in that parking lot. Yeah.
5: Today. Well, he did. He did have to put up four hundred million dollars to take it down if that's what he did. But
1: uh, oh, oh, all right. Well, was uh, uh, looking ahead, I guess. But better. We didn't yes, have to I'll
5: give it. the city. I'll give the city uh, meaningful credit for uh, at least thinking about that risk.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. But in the case of the Bears, you're right. It's Well, we don't know what the deal would be, but we know that one of their objectives is to have more ownership. So um, for that to happen on Park District land is troubling, to say the least. Um, Have you—I'm sorry, my notes are not uh, clear in front of me. You've either promised to uh, fight it in court. What would be your plan? No, no, uh,
5: we're far from that viewpoint. But I think the, that we would uh, be uh, seriously looking at that option, uh, and uh, it just seems uh, that uh, it, it just seems strange that the bears would walk into something uh, without more analysis and thought uh, and, and at least as near as one can determine from what 's come out of on this subject at this moment in time.
1: Yeah. In fact, uh, there are more details on what such an arrangement could entail than I've seen elsewhere in an op-ed that uh, Representative Camp Buckner has in the Tribune. That was just released last night, and I expect it in print in the Sunday paper, though I haven't
5: seen it yet. Okay, I haven't. I'm not aware of that.
1: Um, Take a look. He kind of goes through a lot of the ins and outs, potential ins and outs, of such a deal. um, uh, Considering that there could be some reasons for this to be a good deal for the Bears, would they get the naming rights? Is one question floated? (laughs) because uh, they can't have naming rights to Soldier Field, would that be objectionable to Friends of the Parks if they were given naming rights and park district property?
5: Um, let so, uh, let me I say not address rights. that question at the moment because uh, I haven't seen this material, and I can't speak for Fen- Friends of the Parks. We've had uh, discussions on this subject, obviously, but uh, I think we don't know enough to... to uh, comment on that uh, at this moment
1: well all right and to be clear it, not that it'd be named for the bears but they would get the money for any <laughs> sponsor who <laughs> who they sold it to um yeah. that's yeah. problematic to me as a taxpayer i have to say and as the former marketing of the park district uh, director of the park district where we made a great effort to sell naming rights to various facilities uh, not particularly successful although in later years after i left they did manage to do some um but uh it, I firmly believe that if there's revenue uh, from naming rights on park or property, that it's the taxpayers who ought to benefit uh, from that. So, well,
5: the, I ab- the taxpayers paid for uh, meaningfully for the mayor's uh, uh, current uh, yeah. place. So
1: we still uh, owe,
5: and, and I can't right, and I can't imagine that that there's going to be any public uh, interest or support for providing. Uh, funds uh, to help the Bears in Chicago at this moment.
1: No, and and I will say, Representative Buckner is clear: no public subsidy. But to me, of tax dollars. But to me, that is a public subsidy. So I'm not sure why he was a little dismissive of naming rights um, in that sense. No. That's to me is still a
5: subsidy. Well, and, um, and and the costs of these things are always. Uh, in the public arena, meaningful uh, there's always uh, uh, meaningful infrastructure costs that uh, can't can't be escaped, and it and it would be very inappropriate uh, at this point in time and in, in this city to do that.
1: Given the priorities that we've been talking about for the last couple uh, of hours on the show uh, about the real needs for uh, improving disinvested communities and residents as well. Um, And your point about infrastructure and public subsidy uh, strikes right at the heart of another topic that I want to be sure we can touch on for a couple minutes. Um, And I hope I don't blindside you with this question. Are you familiar with the One Central Project?
5: I'm not, I am not personally familiar
1: so, with that. So this is, <laughs> this is one of the problems. Oh yeah,
5: you're blindsiding me. <laughs> I'm so
1: sorry, but I will tell you a little bit about it. Um, and I, as a resident of the near south community, I am so frustrated by the lack of knowledge about this. But um, you may know the name of Bob Dunn, who is the stadium developer yeah. that Lori Lightfoot brought in to to design the potential dome on Soldier Field. He owns the air rights over the metro tracks down there between um, Mm -hmm. McCormick Place and uh, Soldier Field, basically, but across the uh, Lakeshore Drive, and has a massive 32-acre development plan for which he won through the genius of uh, Mike Madigan and... uh, John Cullerton, in his last session as a, um, Senate leader, $6.5 billion dollar earmark. That was with the B in case the radio disguises the name. It's a billion dollar state subsidy uh, for the infrastructure that he would need to make those air rights have any value whatsoever. Uh, the governor has said he wasn't, he's not real anxious to write the check. He's ordering a feasibility study. He's kind of been dragging his feet on it, but the earmark is out there and approved by the legislature in one of those Madigan deals where it was shoved into a last minute budget bill, the budget implementation bill, uh, that everybody votes for, but nobody has time to read. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, you'd have to pull that section out because it's got all the, benefits, statewide benefits for all the districts. uh, And then he threw this in at the last minute. No one kind of knew it was in there. Six and a half billion dollars in state subsidy for private development, not on parkland, but right across Lakeshore Drive. And it would tie to a stadium development in his uh, drawings that he did for Lori Lightfoot. Um, And I, I I just, I I have talked to Juanita about this and understand that Friends of the Park focuses on what happens on parkland. But this would clearly have an influence on one of our most treasured (laughs) regions of parkland if there was this kind of development there. Uh, So I hope.
5: Indeed. Um, And I'm not. enough knowledgeable about that to talk about it. Um, I'd love to take a few more parks issues into our discussion, if I may. Sure. Um, One is, uh, and this is part of Juanita's legacy with us, um, is the confined disposal facility, uh, which the Army Corps of Engineers has had in place since 1982 on the far southeast side of Chicago, which is essentially a toxic waste dump on the lakefront, and I won't go into the sort of detail of how that happened. In, in mm. uh, but it's part of a federal process that existed uh, back in the 80s to try and keep things clean but do it cheap. Um, it no longer is viable. Uh, Friends of the Parks under Juanita's. Uh, direction and uh, has along with the Environmental Law and Policy Center and the Southeast uh, Alliance filed a lawsuit to stop that from happening but the fact that we have a toxic waste dump on the lake on the far southeast side of Chicago seems to be an issue that should have always had a huge presence but seems to sort of get lost in the political discussions so I don't want to pass by without Uh, mentioning that really important uh, issue that I think all of us should be aware of. Uh, It endangers our our drinking water, among other things. Mm -hmm. And and it's part of a history of the sort of abuse of uh, communities uh, that don't have the power to always defend themselves of creating this toxic waste dump right next to Calumet Park on the far southeast side of Chicago, and it's been there now for decades. That needs to go. It's an important issue. Um, If you haven't discussed that, (laughs) we'd be delighted to take it up with you more.
3: Sure, Uh,
1: and I've seen information on your website about that and invite people to go take a look. We have about 30 seconds to hit your last point, if you had one more.
5: um, I do. We struggled with the Obama Presidential Center, as did uh, most environmental groups and, mm-hmm. and preservationist groups because of its being present in a landmark park, uh, one that has, is supposedly preserved from incursions. Um, and while that was a battle that uh, we would have liked to see come out another way, there still is meaningful need for the uh, Obama folks to look at dealing with the equity issues that have been raised by Their uh, move to that site and making sure that the parks are sufficiently developed to uh, sort of was lost. Uh, I think that...
1: Is so important, and I'm sorry we didn't take more time to talk about it. As our show closes, I'm going to have to leave it there. But I will say that uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, who is the lead designer of so many of our parks, that parks are democratic spaces. And I thank Friends of the Parks for supporting that notion and standing up for it, whether it's in courts or here on the radio. Fred Bates has been my guest, a board member of Friends of the Parks. Thank you for joining me and the great team at WC. CPT, Paul Shivari, who is here in the room with me and others that I don't have time to name. Thank you for following me and joining me today. I'm at Marge Halperin on Threads, Insta, and Twitter, and at Indivisible Chicago if you want our campaign. Have a good afternoon. Thanks for being here.